Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the coast guard we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 232 with my guest Mary O'Hara. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling, Wow, ran out of breath there. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, it's also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. So uh, go check out the website. Uh, you can fill out surveys that help us uh, get to know who you are uh, as a listener. And uh, you can also uh, browse the forum. You can support the show financially. Um, you can buy a mental illness happy hour t-shirt or coffee mug. You can shop. Uh, oh, I'm, <laughs> I always reach a certain point in uh, describing the website where I I just uh, I tire of myself. Is it bad that I am a, a minute and seven seconds into the podcast and I've tired of myself? That's not a good sign because I got a big ass stack of surveys, and the interview with Mary is about uh, about an hour and twenty minutes long. So this is going to be a long one. This is going to be a long episode. Um, I did want to mention one thing about the and uh, the interview uh, with Mary. Uh, there was a moment when we were talking about civil rights in the '60s, and as I was. Uh, playing the show back and editing it, I realized I meant to say integration. Instead, I said segregation. So um, if you're puzzled by what I say there, uh, that's uh, that's why. Um, anyway, I'm going to kick things off with a couple of uh, struggle in a sentence responses. This is uh, from Isla and about her depression. She writes, it feels like I'm trapped in a bubble that keeps me from taking any action that could make my life better, and it separates me from others. It's like watching life go by from the sidelines. Boy, I bet a lot of people relate to that one. I do. Um, 
This one is by Christy, and she writes about her depression. My kids laughing their little hearts out. Quick, I need to smile so they know it's good to laugh and I'm not mad at them. About her ADHD. Where the fuck is my... Oh, I haven't heard this song in forever. About her anxiety. It's like being married to an abusive husband. I'm sorry I can't go to the park. My anxiety won't let me. Wow, that is great. That is great. This is from our friend Catla. Uh, Catla uh, or Catla? I can't. I always forget. Um, uh, Catla. Uh, that's right. No, Catla. <laughs> Shit. Anyway, Catla is a trans female, and she writes about her OCD. I want everything around me to be right and perfect because nothing about me is right or perfect. That is profound. Snapshot from uh, her life. Every morning when I get up, I go through shock trying to figure out how to work my oversized and too masculine body. So I wind up staying in bed, hitting snooze until I need to get up and leave. Every night when I go to bed, I have to free my mind from the stress of working my body that doesn't fit in order to be able to sleep. As a result, I can't go to sleep without an extensive relaxation process. During my day-to-day life, I have trouble focusing on tasks because I'm preoccupied with my gender struggles. I have tested in the 150 to 160 range for IQ, but I can't put my entire mind to any problem because my body doesn't match my mind. Every hour of every day of my life is filled with frustration as a result. Sorry for the novella here. Uh, This was filled out by a guy who calls himself very treatable. And about his ADHD, he writes, It's like there's a million trains whirling around me in all different directions, and I have to know who's in each window of each train because one of them is super important, and I have to make eye contact with each in order to know. That is great. Uh, Johnny Toxic, 1985. Uh, (laughs) It sounds like a terrible Johnny Depp movie. Uh, about his uh, physical disability, uh, which is uh, cerebral palsy. He writes, Every time I pass a stranger on the street, I ask myself, is this going to be the person who will call me Speed Racer or some other diminutive name? If you are going to call me something like that, at least have the decency to call me Racer X. Snapshot from his life. I work part-time and the pay sucks, but is really all I can handle because I can only be, quote, on for four hours a day. I come home to an empty apartment in the security blanket of Seinfeld episodes, Iron Maiden, and Springsteen records. I depend on those three things because they help me forget about the body I am imprisoned in, unless Bruce Dickinson is fencing during Power Slave. I have no idea what that is. I think Bruce Dickinson is a heavy metal singer, but uh, anyway, thank you for that, Johnny. Um, and then finally, this is a dark thought from a guy who calls himself Flying Squirrel. He writes, I think about how I would kill people and dispose of the body. I sometimes think about who, who I know that would help me if need be. After all, good friends help you move. Great friends help you move a body. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. 
I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrendered. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with Mary O'Hara, who is an award-winning journalist who writes about uh, social issues uh, and mental health. Um, she writes for The Guardian uh, and The Observer and uh, she won the Book of the Year Award uh, for the Guardian Review of Books. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so it's just when the Guardian writers choose their favorite books, so it was nice. Well, the way to put it down, though, now we <laughs> now we officially know you're Irish. Yeah, if, yeah, uh, no, you're if, I've got to diss myself just a little bit more. If the, uh, <laughs> if the dialect didn't give it away, uh, that certainly did. You are from Belfast, and I know we have a lot of young listeners who may not understand the history of uh, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and Great Britain. So if you could, um, I know you can probably explain it a lot more eloquently than I could. <laughs> Give them the lowdown. Well, I suppose it's like, uh, how many centuries have your audience got? You know, it's just, it's um, a long and twisted history. Um, trying to summarize Northern Ireland. Jesus. Would you say it started with Henry VIII and Oliver Cromwell? Everything started with Henry VIII, you know, civilization, everything, debauchery, everything started with Henry VIII. Now, the, um, the situation with Northern Ireland is a kind of peculiar one um, constitutionally, but it... Uh, Long well, to cut a very long story short, when there was an agreement in the early 1920s between the British government um, and Ireland that some of Ireland would get its independence of British rule, and it had been ruled by Britain for a long time, uh, one of the things that they didn't get was the six counties in the north of Ireland. And one of the reasons for that is because a very large proportion of the population in Northern Ireland are pro-union, as in pro-being part of... The, the crown. Yeah. And, that's, and generally tend to be Protestant. That's absolutely right. So you've got sort of Protestants, Catholics is how it's usually talked about, but really what they mean is nationalist and unionists. So the proportion of the population that wants to be a part of a united Ireland is still smaller than the proportion of the Northern Irish population that wants to be part of Britain. And much less wealthy. Oh, yeah. And over the years... Um, uh, there have been times of uh, incredible social unrest in Northern Ireland, and uh, perhaps the the biggest um, the biggest uh, issue arose in the late 1960s, really around the same time as the civil rights movement was happening in the US, and you had the riots in Paris and across Europe. Uh, Northern Ireland experienced the same thing because the Catholic part of the population had been for a long time discriminated against by the majority Protestant rulers. Uh, Northern Ireland at that point had its own government separate from Westminster in London. And things like housing, employment, education, Catholics were less likely to get the same opportunities as Protestants. Uh, there was a lot of issues coalesced at the same time, but there was a civil rights movement that launched to highlight these inequities and to say, we need to change this, this is unacceptable. Uh, around the same time, the uh, IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which um, had fought for Irish independence back in the day, um, 
to get the the whole of Ireland free and ultimately got the the south of Ireland free of the British uh, came into resurgence. There were some a number of incidents where the the police uh, in Northern Ireland well, basically there are lots of incidents of police brutality. A lot of Americans will recognize this in the current climate of how when people go out to protest legitimately sometimes they find themselves faced with uh, almost militaristic police responses people die people are injured that then snowballs creates a, a much greater problem and in the northern irish context what that meant was that the ira uh, suddenly found itself no longer dormant lots of people felt that the only way to get um, the whole of Ireland united to get Northern Ireland free of British rule was through armed insurrection. That was the option that people felt was open to them. It There were a lot of incidents that happened in one of the responses. There were many responses, but one of the responses was to send the British army into Northern Ireland in the early 1970s. There were Oh, thousands of British troops walking the streets of Northern Ireland, especially the cities, places like West Belfast, where I grew up, where I was born, uh, where we had four or five um, what were called food patrols. So combined army and police presences on our streets five, six times a day. Uh, local people were often just pulled aside. They were searched um, without any recourse. Uh, People were imprisoned without trial for periods of time. Generally Catholics? Yeah, usually. And the area that you grew up in, was it predominantly uh, Protestant or Catholic? Well, it's interesting, West Belfast, because it it really speaks to the issue of Northern Ireland, because the, the main road is called the Falls Road that runs through West Belfast, and it is a Catholic road, a center of republicanism, and yet only a stone's throw away, divided by a huge wall, is the Shankill Road, which is the Protestant equivalent. These are very working class areas, um, have had long histories of poverty. Uh, it's the area where, for instance, the old um, cotton mills used to be back in the industrial sort of industrial age. So real heartlands of working class culture, but very different traditions right alongside each other. Now, what that meant is there were opportunities for clashes, for enormous clashes between the two groups because they had such divergent ideas of what the world should be and what their communities should be. And certainly in in my lifetime, when I was growing up there, I mean, the violence that I witnessed just on an almost weekly basis, I think most people would find quite extraordinary. Uh, We had, for a long time, our streets were barricaded off by army vehicles. We had tanks driving up the street, people shooting from rooftops, bombs going off. You know, it was for a very long time an incredibly unstable situation. Lots of young men, and it's usually young men, would then try to defend their communities, Protestant and Catholic. They all felt they had to do something uh, to defend their communities against what they perceived as an enemy. So they'd go... uh, Would it be fair to say, though, that the the Protestants... had had the army more on their side than the Catholics did. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because there are these wonderful um, pictures of the early days of the Troubles because it was called the Troubles in inverted commas, which is very 
fucking Irish, right? That's like, it's not a war. It's a, it's the troubles. We're all a tiny bit troubled by some things, you know. <laughs> and you're kind of like, it was only because I took it for granted growing up there. But later on, I'm like, seriously, that's what they decided to call a civil war? Oh, sure, we're having a tiny bit of trouble today, you know. So it was sort of ridiculous. But in the early days when the army turned up, strangely, the Catholic community saw them as their rescuers. Because what the the Catholic community were worried about at the time was this dominant Protestant um, sort of political force that was then manifested in the police force, 99% Protestant. They thought the British Army coming in would be an independent arbiter in some way. And there are pictures of women in the street giving baked goods to the soldiers when they arrived because they felt that they were going to be a buffer between them and this uh, police force and political institutions that were oppressing them. Now, over time, that altered. And when it did alter, it did so dramatically. Hence, you have the IRA then targeting soldiers. Lots of them were assassinated, blown up. Uh, It was an incredibly sort of messy situation. And so it weirdly transformed from them being seen as a protector to being seen as another part of the British establishment and the enemy. I mean, for me... Because I had soldiers on my street all the time, one of the things that struck me... The household you were raised mm. in was, one parent was Catholic, one parent was Protestant? Well, my mum had a Protestant father who fought in the Second World War for the was part of the British Navy, and they but was brought up a Catholic, as was my father. Uh, but because of that background, as children... Uh, my brothers and sisters and I were always aware that we were part something else, right? So whenever there were the, these, whenever people were talking about sectarianism or identity or be on your side, you're not on their side. Well, for someone like me who was an obstreperous little shit and I always had a million questions and I'd be like, well, but I just happen to live here, but part of me is part of these other people. So tell me why I should hate these people. Um, so I was very aware from an early age that this idea of identity is a bit confused. You can tell yourself you're something, but you look into your background and suddenly you realise you're actually something else entirely. So I used to annoy a lot of people, including my <laughs> friends, because they'd be quite dogmatic. You know, they'd be like, you know, up the IRA and all this kind of stuff. And I'd be like, well, you know, maybe. You know. And then once I started learning a wee bit about politics, because I got really into politics generally when I was quite young. I was kind of like, but isn't it the case really that a lot of working class people are being done over by people who are wealthy? You know, isn't it the case that none of the middle class areas have soldiers in them every day and they're not being blown up and no one's shooting on their rooftops? Shouldn't we all ask that question? So (laughs) I, I began to see that it was a much more complicated picture then maybe we were being told that oh, yeah. it was. If the, if the ruling elite can get the poor people to fight each other, they can just sit back and they get, yeah. sail their yacht. They can, and that's exactly what they were doing. There's an actual lock in Northern Ireland where that's what they all do. They all go off the weekends and sail their yachts. But it's kind of, for me, the soldiers were interesting because even as a little girl, I could tell that a lot of them were really young um, and actually terrified. So, you know, they'd walk up and down your street and they had this technique where they would, they always had rifles, uh, but they would have this technique where they would bob up and down. So they'd be like down on their hunkers, down on their knees and then up again, down again, up again, because they're trying to avoid snipers. And kids are curious, you know, you know, kids will go up and pet a rabid dog, you know, they don't care. Like, you know, so you'd go up and you'd have a conversation with these guys and you realize, well, they're not actually that weird. You know, they're just 
people here doing what they think they're supposed to do. And then you realize that you're talking to 18 year olds when you're 10, 18 seems ancient, but you're not that stupid to realize that this guy is still young. You know, this is the age of my uncle or my brother or and I sort of felt for everybody in the situation. I sometimes felt that it's easy to define things as, you know, no areas of gray. There's always an area of gray. Always, always. That's one of the things that I stress so much and why I always, I should say why I started um, adding to the shame and secret survey Mm -hmm. is, did you have any positive experiences with your abusers? And almost always, even the worst abusers, um, there was something that they did that... That was an act of kindness once or yeah. twice. There's always something. And I think that's definitely, certainly from like the the place I grew up had, like there was so much social unrest and so much destabilization. There was, there was a lot of mental health problems, a lot of domestic violence, alcohol problems, all of those kinds of things. So you're exposed to how people react to these uh, like extraordinary traumatic things. But even in the midst of the bleakest of moments, there are random acts of humor and random acts of kindness, even by people who you can't believe would be capable of it. Any any of those spring to mind? Well, it's interesting because in my own experience, like lots of my friends lived in households with extreme domestic violence, for instance. Uh, a lot of the men were unemployed. A lot of them were being pushed and pulled into terrorist organizations, often being threatened uh, some of them had been shot. So their lives were often pretty bleak. And you could, you could be in a room. I mean, I was in a room once with um, one of my best friends and her father was holding a knife to her mother's throat. And you would think there's nothing about this man that is redeemable. He's holding a knife to his wife's throat. And yet every summer he drove us to the coast to have some kind of holiday because... <laughs> You know, we needed to have a break from all this shit, you know, and it was so you're kind of like, yeah, well, he beats his wife, but, you know, he takes us on holiday. And when else are we going to get a holiday? You know, your 13 year old self says, you know, so you, you, it's just so twisted in many ways. And I think also because when when you're witnessing acts of horror, you, you can't believe that someone can pull back. And in the context of Northern Ireland over the years, a lot of the guys who perpetrated the most heinous acts went on to be community workers, went on to be advocates for poorer people, uh, everything from get, helping people find a home to, you know, if an elderly member of the family has dementia, how do you get better care for that person? It's none of these things are simple. And I think when you're exposed to it firsthand, you're very reluctant to let people paint any issue as black and white. There's always more to it. There there always is. And, you know, what springs to mind is uh, in the Middle East, some of the organizations that commit these terrible, terrible acts mm. are also um, helping to, to feed some of the poor people, to, to k- take care of the mothers uh, who are widows. And yeah. it's... It's, uh, it's it's so complicated. It's really complicated. And I often remember when I first, I moved to England when I was 18 to go to university. And like there were just constant questions. People had never been to Northern Ireland. And when I, at that age, it was still pretty bad. It was 1988. So there were still, every time I went home, there were still people being shot. And, you know, there were bombing campaigns in London. And I remember visiting London yeah. in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, I, I think it was about a week after the really big uh, bombing at yeah. a department store. Yeah. And, 
weekend or maybe not a week, but it was it was shortly thereafter. And yeah. I just remember kind mm. of uh, being a little nervous, a having of, a good time, but also. Um, yeah. Yeah. What could happen next? Whereas I had a classic once. I'm going off on a tangent here, but you know how it is when a story comes into your head. that sure. you're just gonna think I was at work. Um, it was, I think it was 92. And there had just been another like a massive bomb in the city of London. And interesting because it was a financial target, you know, very symbolic. But my dad rang up and he says, uh, so I'm really worried about you. Are you okay? You know, it seems like a very scary place. And I'm like, you live in West <laughs> Belfast. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm like, okay, you know, there's a few bombs going off, but like, what's new? <laughs> but I'm just like, says, oh, well, I don't know. It's not the same. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, it's dangerous. Yeah, dad, I can't hear you over the tank. Yeah, but you know what I mean? So I'm just kind of, but it, for him, it was just an unknown because at that point he'd only yeah. ever been to London once and he just thought it was like a foreign country, you know. My daughter's in danger. And I'm like, oh, for Christ's sake, you know, you walk down the street and you're in danger. You know, I, I know how to take care of myself. The one thing you learn when you grow up on the streets in the middle of a civil war is how to get the hell out of Dodge when the shit hits the fan. You know, <laughs> I'm like, when I was a teenager, I didn't do high heels for a reason. <laughs> I lived, I I lived in flat lace up shoes. Right. And luckily for me, like uh, s- sort of mods were quite and at the time, so everyone wore flat shoes, but we needed to run like we needed to know that we could get out of trouble fast. I'm like, I think I can handle myself, Dad. All right, <laughs> you know, it's it's okay. Uh, share some recollections that you have of um, your childhood, be it related to the troubles or uh, within your family. Mm. Um, Boy, you ask big questions, don't you? <laughs> it's kind of like, okay. Um, oh my God, right. So there are lots of, there's no way to think about my childhood and not think about the weird circumstances that we were in. So I used to find myself sat in a corner reading books because I used books as an escape to, like I, like I used to go and do whole shelves in the library. Um, really? On the, I would just go from one end to the other I bored the librarians to death because I would just take, I mean, this was like as a seven-year-old or something, take all the books home, sit and read them because I needed to escape. And the thing I think that defined my whole childhood for me was it was always about escape. Everything was about how I was going to eventually get out. So I'd read all, I'd read every children's book known to man that was in English, you know, because I I didn't care whether it was about frogs or, you know, I didn't care what it was about as long as I could escape a bit. And my friends and I used to spend a lot of our time doing things like that. And we had, weirdly, this odd piece of waste ground that used to be, I think, like a de- like a sort of depot for deliveries, but it had all become sort of overgrown with like wild foliage. Now, for us inner city kids, this was like nirvana. You know, we were like, it was on the end of our council estate. So basically, I suppose the equivalent of what you would have here would be you know, any public housing complex. We were in the Northern Irish equivalent, except with a few things, you know, like being shot at or whatever. But we would just escape into this little, what we thought was like... Wilderness. Wilderness, you know. And thinking about it now, it was probably... There's not a lot of green in Belfast. No, but it was probably like 100 square feet or something. But when you're 10, it's like amazing. So we used to just go over there and we'd like, you know, do that thing where you make pretend houses and pour pretend cups of tea and all this kind of stuff and hide under dock leaves and, you know, find tadpoles and stuff. And we're like, 
this is our parents had no idea where we were. But the other thing that we were doing, which people get a bit weirded out by, is well, we were just like kissing boys, right? We were just like a ten, you know, get all these boys to come over and sit in our pretend houses, and <laughs> we would just like snog the faces off them, you know. <laughs> it's just like these bewildered ten-year-old boys going, "What's happening?" And we're like, "Well, you're going to kiss me now." <laughs> like, what is happening? Why are people why are people weirded out by that? Well, because they they don't think the ten-year-olds are interested in that kind of thing. I was at ten, and all my friends were. None of the boys were. The girls were. Yeah. The girls were like tiny little tarts you know we're just <laughs> out there like you know nipping away at these poor guys but but we just had this weird kind of almost i i read a lot of famous five books and stuff when i was a kid so i loved all this you know it's just let's have a little adventure but you would come out of that we'd go back into reality back into homes where there were there's a lot of trouble a lot of like the sorts of social problems that you get with poverty frankly the area we lived in was uh one of the, if not the poorest region in the whole of Western Europe. And I mean, really, really bad. I had no idea. Yeah. And it still is. And by that, you mean West Belfast? Yeah. And it still is. It still is up there. It's still one of the poorest areas. And I mean, that's a big piece of land to be among the poorest of. So most of our dads are unemployed. Uh, and, and and you're including Bulgaria and those well, Western, other well Western Europe. So, oh, Western Europe. Yeah, okay, because so there's yeah, some yeah. incredible poverty yeah. in Eastern so, Europe. But when we were kids, of course, it was still they were still all communist. So they had a, it was an entirely different thing. So, but even compared to places like Spain, which coming out of the Franco regime had extraordinary poverty, Portugal extraordinary poverty, parts of the south of Italy extraordinary poverty. So even compared with some of those places which really were dire, West Belfast was whenever I see a documentary on uh, on Belfast, it's mm. the two things that, that that strike me is the lack of greenery, which is ironic because it's in Ireland, which is one of the lushest, greenest places on the planet. But well, you know, it's funny you should say that because one of the weird things about growing up in a ghetto, which is what we grew up in, um, and it absolutely defines our childhoods, which was that we didn't move outside of like one or two square mile radius. We didn't go anywhere apart from when someone's dad decided to take us away for the summer to a caravan. So our... Because it was dangerous? Often, yeah. But often just because people didn't have any money. You know, people just... You just didn't go anywhere. And so that creates a mentality that is very defensive, but also offensive toward people that try to enter or, or come near you. But weirdly, we were in these ghettos and they were very urban. So any documentary about Northern Ireland will be about these areas because it's it's where the intensity was. It's where the troubles were happening. It's where the violence was. And yet, if I stood on the corner of like the road, the, the main road that ran up the side of our council estate, the first thing I see is a mountain. I mean, just like a mountain. And it's just this huge hulk of green. And like the idea of going up the mountain or going to the other side of it was preposterous. And it wasn't until I was of an age where I had to go to the airport because I was going to London. And it turns out you have to go over the mountain to get to the airport. And I'm like, wow. You I've know. never seen a shot of that in a single documentary. Right? But it is possibly the, the single, apart from the docks, um, it's possibly the most topographically significant thing 
And also, when we were growing up, because we'd look at the top of the mountain, and of course the armed forces would be up there. They had their they had little spy things up there to look down at us. So the mountain was associated with being scrutinised, with being watched. Like we'd have helicopters all day and night with spotlights on us. You know, we were just used to these things. But because we were in this mentality of ghettoization, it's very hard to look at the mountain as anything other than something that is troubling because we're being watched from it. That's so fucked up. Yeah, it's really, really, really screwed up. And then a mile in the other direction from, if I was stood on that road looking up at the mountain, if I turned and just went the other way, I'd get to the university area of Belfast, so Queen's University. It's like one of the top 10 universities in Britain. I mean, it's a global player, an amazing place. And beside that is the botanical gardens. And you go in there and there's like, there's an amazing, you know, array of foliage and plants. And it's this beautiful kind of, you know, I don't know, it's just Elysian fields. And I would go wandering up there because that told me that there was something beyond what I was living. And then our teachers would take us on day trips sometimes, you know, that hire a minibus and take us out. And then we'd see the green. Then we'd get out and we'd see the contrast between where we were every day and what was beyond where we were. But unless we'd had an education system that allowed us to do that, we wouldn't have been able to see beyond our noses. And I, you know what you were saying earlier about if you keep the poor fighting each other, then everyone else is easy. If you keep the poor locked into communities where they never get to meet other people, how can you possibly see what the world has to offer? And, and, and how can your ideas change? And how can your ideas change? And how can you be open to new ideas? But... The fact that we live on, quite frankly, the greenest, lushest piece of land, weird as it is, that is imaginable, but don't get to see it. Is you know, it- I was I was just thinking the other day. I, I posted something uh, celebrating the Supreme Court decision of legalizing marriage, mm. and of course, you know, you get the people that blah 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 talking about the constitution and how it wasn't right yeah. you know to which i always say you're you're either for equality or you're not yeah but the people that have these entrenched ideas about something um or some group of people being all bad or an act being all bad or whatever yeah uh, I, I just want to say to them go make two friends yeah. with this group that you demonize and i bet your ideas Will change. change. Well, that's interesting you say that because one of the things that I started doing from an early age was exactly that. So at the bottom of my street was what was called a peace wall. Ironic, right? Because there's nothing peaceful about this damn thing. It is literally just dividing communities. And often it was used as a platform to just shoot at each other from and stuff. But I wanted to get to know the people on the other side of that wall. I wanted, why can't I get to know my equivalent on the other side of that wall? So I started doing drama so that I could do plays and musicals, um, got involved with um, theatres that would deliberately get kids from both sides of the divide together. And we'd be doing plays together for like months at a time. There is no way once you're in that situation that you see any differences. You only see what you have in common, but you have to get a chance to meet. When I got a bit older, I joined a community relations group. So I was uh, 16, 17. That was fantastic too. So we were older teenagers. One of the things that was really freaked the shit out of me was they themed weekends away. So we'd go away for these weekends, we'd mix, we'd talk, you know, sometimes you'd fancy someone, you know, sometimes there'd be a, you know, whatever, teenagers. But then we'd sit in these groups and talk about history. 
And there was a moment that I realised that none of the Protestants had been taught Irish history. None of them. All the Catholics had been taught Irish history since kindergarten. We knew the entire story. They were utterly unaware. Now, if you keep people in that level of ignorance, then what gives them the motivation to reach out? They are even more cut off in a way than we were because at least we had some context for what was happening. These guys had no context whatsoever. It was incredible. But then the other thing that happened was that as a girl growing up in that environment, um, in many ways, you, you had it easier, strangely, because we weren't being recruited all the time into paramilitary organisations unless your family was like part of the paramilitary networks. As a girl, you could you, you didn't have to deal with these guys coming out and threatening to shoot you if you didn't sign up. And, you just had to go to funerals. Yeah, right. And my school overlooked the IRA um, graveyards. So... When we were at school, that's what we looked out on from our classrooms. Wow. So, you know, we were uh, we had a constant reminder of that. But when I started doing the community relations stuff, what I realized was that the boys, some of them had to back out because they were being threatened for being part of this community relations group. They were being threatened by local paramilitaries and being told that they'd be shot if they kept going. And these are guys from working class areas, you know, tough little fuckers, you know, really like hard men like little gangsters, you know, um, who were trying to do something and it was totally cut off to them. And like my older brother kept saying to me, you're getting yourself into a lot of trouble here. You know, if you don't, if you keep this up, you know, shit's going to hit the fan. Um, for you or for them? Well, for me, he was saying. But then what he was also telling me is it was for him too. So if I kept being part of this, then by default, he was associated with my actions and all I was doing was hanging out with kids who were Protestant. Now, you've got, to, you, you've got to ask what kind of society tells its children that it'll shoot them if they talk to each other. I mean, that's what you're talking about. It's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And all, you know, and I, weirdly, the first place I studied after Northern Ireland was in Charleston in South Carolina. Really? At the College of Charleston. I was on a scholarship. And in fact, I emailed my professor when the events happened there last week because I had been on that campus and, you know, I still have friends there. And we were talking about this because I remember turning up and Northern Ireland has no black people. Well, it has a few now, but back then it was we had a few Vietnamese immigrants, a few Chinese immigrants, and you did not see black faces anywhere. But one of the weirdest things was I grew up next to the hospital and the black people I knew were doctors because the, the hospital used to train doctors from Africa in how to stitch people up after shrapnel wounds or being shot. So my association with black people was doctors. It was like completely different to what everybody likes to paint black people as. Turn up in Charleston, suddenly have all of these like amazing black friends and get into really deep discussions with them about segregation, about the history of the South and interesting for us to connect because I came from a different kind of ghetto, but it was a segregated community and it was segregated often by wealth and power. We couldn't see up by the look on someone's face. We couldn't tell by someone's skin color where they belonged in the pecking order, but you could tell by where they lived. Fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating to, to dig a bit deeper into the constructs that create segregation. And so I've always been fascinated by that ever since. And then to watch 
what happened, you know, just incredible. I, I can't disconnect from 25 years ago when I was studying there and learning about that, learning about the Confederacy, learning about what it all meant. And that even a quarter century later, that that's still an issue. You know, I've, I've been thinking about 21st century bigotry. Mm. It, most people that are modern day bigots don't think that they're bigots mm. because they think, I support black people voting. Yeah. <laughs> I th- I think that, yeah. um, you know, segregation uh, was bad. was wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... I believe that that they are just our version of the person in the 60s who was afraid of segregation but didn't think they were a bigot because they thought, yes, slavery should have been ended. But it's just so selective. I mean, it's like like you were saying earlier, you know, either you're for equality or you're not. It's really, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex issue, but it's not that difficult to get your head around. It really yeah. isn't. Are, just ask yourself, are you treating that person the way you would like to be treated? Well, you know, it's one of the things that um, I suppose in the past few years I've, you know, and I'm not an angry person. If I was going to be angry, I would have been a long time ago because of circumstances. But one of the things in the last few years from my work has been this kind of new wave of bigotry that has emerged in Britain. And it's not a racial bigotry. It's like a resurgence of class hatred, class bigotry, and almost like a some kind of political pseudo-philosophical war on the poor. And that really rankles with me because one of the things that happened after the Great Recession and um, to Britain, and it's what my book is about, is the austerity policies that were put in place and the harm that it did to people who were already not very well off. But the thing that accompanied, accompanied it was incredibly toxic because all the political rhetoric and the media rhetoric was painting people who were living in poverty as if they were some kind of social reprobate, a misfit to blame for their own circumstances. You know, to me, the idea that a child going to school who happens to be from a poor family is to blame for those circumstances. I mean, that was me. That that was not my fault that I grew up where I grew up or in poverty. So don't Expect me to sit by and be quiet while you try to tell a new generation of children that they are second class citizens. It is absolutely extraordinary to me that in modern Britain, that is the dominant political narrative. Incredible. And because that narrative. It's here, too. The really. The news outlets that make me sick are the ones that. that convince middle class people that poor people uh are the problem yeah you know they'll they'll yeah. they'll show a, a poor person using a microwave and <laughs> yeah. say this per you know look at they can afford a they microwave afford- why is this person on welfare and i'm all for somebody having a, a degree of personal responsibility yeah. but yeah um but i think what they don't seem to get and this is like this is the most ridiculous thing about these arguments is that what they don't get is the more you put people down, the more you tell them they're worthless, the more they're likely to believe that they're worthless. It is actually very, very hard when you grow up in those conditions mm-hmm. to convince yourself that you are as worthy as anyone else. Someone tells you you're shit. You know what? It's easy to believe that, that you're shit. 
And that's not what you're told when you come when you come from a middle class background. You're told that you can be president, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're told to be aspirational. You know, reach for the stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whereas you're a poor kid, you're kicked when you're already down. I mean, and you know the statistics here on dropout levels for young people from poor backgrounds when they even make it to college, uh, because it's so hard to make the adjustment into that world that's culturally different. If you're hammered enough from these so-called people who are successful, it's very hard to crawl your way out of that idea of who you are. So give me some, some more snapshots from, from childhood to, to paint a, a picture of... One of the things that is, uh, to you know me... What, do me a favor, reach behind you and close the door. We got uh, some... Cleaners, I think? Some visitors or cleaners or something. There. That was... Very nice. <laughs> I think you might be able to turn pro. In. It was a door closing. It was very dramatic. It was a beautiful. I even did a little hand gesture to indicate. <laughs> nice flourish at the end. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I could be on a game show. You know, I could be the woman in the sequence dress, <laughs> just closing doors. <laughs> yeah, I was sort of thinking, but it all ties in, really. I suppose to these issues around poverty and inequality because they define who I am. And by the way, the the book uh that that Mary uh wrote that has um that won the award is called Austerity Bites and it's about those those very uh topics yeah. about the the once the recession hit the UK the cuts to um social social services everything yeah. social any social provision began to be targeted including for disabled people and well, aren't you a little tired of the, the the disabled sucking off us, Mary? Oh yeah, yeah. You know those lazy, feckless bastards with their you know. great parking spaces. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I have actually had people ask me that. You know, well, they can't be that badly off if they have a car. You've got to be shitting me. Yeah. Wow. So why? I mean, why do they need our help if they can afford a car? There's a point where you're dumbstruck. You know, there is. There are points where you just go. It doesn't really matter what I say to this person, you know, because the fact that they're saying that to me just speaks volumes. Unfriend. Unfriend. <laughs> Unfriend, you know. I don't know. I don't know what you do with those people, yeah. but you don't you don't spend too much time. So but, give me some snapshots. So I had so for me personally, I think uh my education was possibly the single most important factor in my childhood. So I uh I had a grandmother um, who was, you know, for want of a better word, a tall asshole. And she told me once I started off my own back being interested in reading, like basically eating books for breakfast, uh, she told me that there is no way in hell that I was going to amount to anything. Who did I think I was? I thought I was better than everybody else. And I'm like, what, because I can read? You know? Wow. Yeah. So... There was a bit of me that just went, no, 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 just despite you, I'm going to kick <laughs> ass, you know, just despite you. But just so happened that I had these amazing teachers um, right from the get-go, and it, it just inspired me beyond belief. And at the time in Northern Ireland, we had basically what ended up being a segregated education system, not just by religion, but by social class as well. So if you were a kid from working class background, um, your chances of passing this um, qualifying exam to get you into the best schools were pretty slim. And I failed that exam at age 11. Normally what happens is that then you are designated as a person who would be a shop worker or a receptionist or um, a box, you know, made boxes in a factory, all jobs that need to be done. But to be told that that's all you're fit for at age 11 really rankled and 
my teachers told me which school I should go to, which happened to be on the Falls Road and was run by this extraordinary woman, a nun, uh, who was in the Sisters of Charity, which were uh, an order of nuns that were all about redressing poverty. They were out in the field. They weren't sequestered. They weren't cloistered. And her whole ethos was, A, if you're a girl, you can do anything. And B, if you're a girl who grew up in poverty, you can do anything. And it didn't matter what our background was. We arrived in that school. The first thing we're told is, what do you want to be? What do you want to do with your life? We're here to make it happen. Utterly extraordinary to be part of something like that. What do you remember thinking or feeling the first time you heard that? Terrified. This woman was one scary lady. I really? Mean, oh, my God. She wore she wore those glasses that... Um, when the sun hit them, they tinted and went slightly darker. So, like, we all used to call her, like, we also think she's like a mafiosa, you know. She would, like, sort of march around the place, terrifying everybody. But she, ter- I mean, she literally terrified everybody. When the IRA came to tell her to shut the school down because there were funerals going on, she told them to sod off, you know. My girls are not missing a day of school. If there were riots on the street, she'd walk us down the road to make sure we got home, walk us back up again, um, you know. All kinds of stuff. But, you know, you're a young girl and you're thinking, this woman is awesome, right? Scary as hell, but awesome. Um, but, how, you know, ter- if you asked anybody that went to my school what they thought of her, the first thing they'd say is we were terrified. But the second thing they'd say is that she told us something that most kids in poverty never get told. That with the right support, a good education system we can, you know, we can break out of this. And so we had like, the school had the best record for employment in the one of the highest poverty areas in Europe. Um, something like 80% employment leaving school. The rest of us went to university. The idea that you could you could do all kinds of things wasn't out of our remit. We had people who went on to be actors, doctors, lawyers, you know, that was not happening in the other schools in our area. As hard as they tried, that wasn't happening. So for me, that is the most defining thing because what she refused to give into was what she saw as the, I suppose, be, as us being penalised for where we were born and being told that we were less than. And she wasn't going to have any of it, frankly. And that was an amazing thing to be part of. And that's why I say when you can live in the hardest of circumstances, but every now and again, someone does something that just blows you away. Did you have any champions within your family? People who championed you and your intellect? It was kind of hard because they just thought I was a freak. Um, <laughs> I mean, they weren't wrong in that regard. But but this was... I was sort of, like, weird. And, um, like, I was nerdy, but I was still a tough little street kid, too. So, I mean, if you asked my childhood friends now, they would tell you what I was like because... I'd come home from school, I'd do my homework, I'd read a couple of books and then I'd go out and hang around on the street corner and steal these boys to make them kiss me and, you know, and just get into all kinds of trouble and, you know, start drinking beer at like 12 and, you know, and it was, it was. You have a lot of energy. (laughs) I I mean, that's a full day. It's a really full day, I tell you. But I was just like, I was like, I don't know. I was like sort of street kid nerd if there is such a thing, you know. And uh, so it, it was difficult because I, most of my brothers and sisters were younger than me. And I spent a lot of my time looking after them as well because of difficulties at home. 
So I did that kind of side of things too. Did the shopping for the family, made sure all the food was on the table, all of that kind of thing. So I had those responsibilities at home. I had these really... And how many kids? Seven. And I had these really great friends who were like, they're still my friends. We were together since we were like ankle high, you know, wonderful people. So I always had them. They always supported me. My older brother, uh, <laughs> there was one point where I think I was 13 and he went and punched one of my boyfriends because he said he was distracting me too much from my schoolwork. <laughs> it was like, he just went up and punched him in the street. And um, so then I need him in the nuts and said, look, how stupid do you think I am? You know, just because I've got a boyfriend doesn't mean I'm not going to do my shit, right? You know, I don't need you protecting me. You know, <laughs> it's like, that's when I realized what feminism was, you know. <laughs> so it's like, turns out you can knee blokes in the nuts. It's brilliant. Um, so he was like constantly trying to make sure I didn't, you know, fall off that path that I'd put myself on. But you couldn't see it at the time. You just Oh, I could it. say it clear as day. I knew he was being protective, but he was my older brother and he was being a dick. So, you know, what do you do? And but he but even he didn't quite understand why I had to do what I had to do. And so like I'd be sitting in the kitchen writing an essay and fretting about it. And then like my dad come in and go like why don't you just not do it if it's causing you that much stress just don't bother and I'm like you haven't a clue have you you know like my parents were semi-literate as well so they didn't they didn't read I mean my mum read Mills and Boone and I just like Jesus that's terrible what do you read that shit for but what did she read Mills and Boom, you know, those romance novel things where there's mm -hmm. always like some hairy chested medallion wearing suave dude on a Mediterranean yacht that comes in and scoops his housewife away. That kind of story, you know, so I'm like, yeah, whatever floats your boat. But if that's what you have to do to like deal with all this shit, fine by me. Um, but I'd be like really earnestly carrying on with stuff. And and then at 14, I decided to stop drinking because it was getting in the way, you know, because <laughs> at 14, that's what you do. <laughs> but like, I've had a hard life. I've had I a hard life, my friend. And so me and my friends were doing that weekend drinking thing and stuff. And then I had to knuckle down and get on with some shit. But other than that, no one in the family really kind of understood what was happening. Now, when it came time for me to be doing my A-levels, which are the equivalent of the final exams here in the U.S. To get into university. To get into university. And I had an offer from Cambridge. Um, which was an incredible thing on so many levels because if I went, I'd be the first person from my school ever to go to either Oxford or Cambridge wow. in its history. And when you bear in mind what I was telling you about my principal and telling us we could be anything, it was a really big deal. And when I told people that this is what was going to happen um my dad stopped speaking to me he didn't talk to me for six months why because i was supposed to only leave the house if i was on his arm walking up the aisle and getting married that was oh my god that's what was supposed to happen and then my mom threatened to kill herself if i left because she said she couldn't cope if i because i did all the stuff at home in terms of looking after younger kids and all of that managing household finances and things and she said well, well and she had tried to kill herself a few times so this it's not like I could take it as an idle threat and she'd been institutionalized a few times and so this wasn't like just some random threat this was something that I understood very clearly um, as someone who'd patched her up after different attempts and my friends and my boyfriend at the time said you can't let this happen this is like if if you walk away from this, you know, you will 
absolutely never forgive yourself. And so I went to my teachers. I went to the head teacher and said, look, this is what I'm facing. And it was quite funny because two of the nuns went marching down and marched into the house, <laughs> basically. In the Catholic community at that time, even though my mum was an atheist, it's still kind of, you know, scary when the nuns come. And, and they had the whole habits and everything, you know, they looked like pretty fierce sort of pterodactyl type figures. So they swooped in and said, under no circumstances do you tell this child that you're going to do this. Because you know what? You're not going to kill yourself. You're not. You know you're not. <laughs> they were just like, so just let her live her life. And of course, the, my mum's like, oh, yes, sister, I think she misinterpreted me. I, wasn't, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think she understood what I was trying to say. And they're like, no, she understood what you were trying to say. And, you know, the, it turns out it, it was an idle threat. You know, she was uh, there were lots of things wrapped up in it. Like, obviously, she didn't think she'd be able to cope. And this was her only way of communicating that to me. But they basically said, no way, bitch, this is not going to happen. Um, but it, it still didn't make it easy to leave. you know. Was, and so where did you go? Um, I went to Charleston first um, on that scholarship and then straight to Cambridge after that. Um, where what I then, did you think your first day in Cambridge? Holy shit. Um, that's literally what I thought. Well, it was weird because I turned up and... When I originally applied, I mean, there was no internet at the time, so you couldn't just do a search and find out what people thought of this place. I had no idea. I knew no one had ever been, even set foot on the la- on the land of Cambridge. You know, I had no idea. So my t- one of the teachers and I looked through the brochure and decided, okay, so where do you want to go? Well, I don't want a big college because I think that'll be too intimidating for me. I love history, so let's find an old one. Um, so we picked an old one that didn't have, because the collegiate system in Cambridge, um, like 29 colleges make up the university, but you live in a college, it's a cultural thing. We didn't know this. So we thought, oh, that picture looks nice. Let's pick that, <laughs> right? It was all male and I was going to be in the first year of women in 400 years at this joint. What? Yes. So I went from an all-female... Those female are some sweet odds, Mary. Oh, per- you don't. You don't have to pull the boys in to, to oh, make Don't a- get me started, right? Um, I didn't have to pull them into the into the bushes anymore. But um, it was... So I turned up. It was it was a stop you know how you were talking about everything starts with Henry VIII well he he established this college right he established this college and I get there and I realise there are ten men for every woman a lot of nerds so some of them just stayed in their room the whole time which is fine but A first year of women in its history B it was the poshest college even other Cambridge colleges mocked it for being posh and which college was it? Maudlin right it's spelt magdalene which of course i thought it was pronounced magdalene when i first got there and was pretty quickly corrected for my plebeian you know lack of knowledge about the place but it was the poshest it was full of these big burly rugby players um i think in my first week i punched one of them and i need one of them in the bollocks um because they came up and tried to, you know, thought that like, oh, yeah, yeah, I could easily woo this woman. And I was like, fuck off, you know. <laughs> so I got a bit of a reputation as a hard nut, which is hilarious because in Belfast, I was like a little quiet girl, you know. No one would have had me down as a hard nut. But to all these posh English guys, I was like little boxer scrapper woman, you know. 
It was fun. The street urchin from I Northern was, Ireland. I was, I was like, I was like Rocky or something. You know what yeah. I mean? Just turning up, and all these people were like, you had to wear like a a gown to dinner. What? Yeah, you couldn't wear jeans to dine. Dinner was by candlelight. I mean, it was. What? It was like Harry Potter. If you can imagine a dinner scene in Harry Potter, that was my college. And it was the only college that still had dinner by candlelight. I mean, that's how far back it was. But that the contrast between that and home was... <laughs> I tell you, it was... There is just... You must have thought you were on another planet. No, I did. It was like, I, I was, I, and that's how I explain it to people because it wasn't just like, it's not even like going to a foreign country. It's like I'm on the moon. It's like I have no idea about any of this. So I'll give an example. You know, this whole idea where you've got like 50 sets of cutlery at dinner time and you panic because no one's taught you how to use them. That you um, start from the outside and you right? move your way in. So it was bloody obvious to anybody sitting beside me that I didn't know what was going on. And like someone who became a good friend of mine was sitting next to me and said, just work your way in. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Because he made no big deal of it. And it was great. <laughs> the funny thing was, we got to the third course, and uh, which was a sorbet. And it was this tiny little dish. And I was sitting thinking, it's not much of a dessert, is it? I mean, Jesus, it's like one tiny scoop of sorbet or sorbet, as I called it at the time. And um, so I, I ate it and I'm thinking, OK, that's it. Um, and so I said to this guy, that was like a really crappy dessert. And he's like, that's not your dessert. That's a palate cleanser. And I'm like, what do you mean? He says, well, you've just had the fish course. Now you're cleaning, clearing your palate for the meat course. And I'm like, how many of these are there? And he's like, oh, there's another five after that. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. And I had ate all the bread on the table because I thought all these portions are really small. <laughs> so I was just eating all the bread because I was hungry. And then I had another all these courses to go through. <laughs> so it was things like that that were just mystifying to me. And then once you've done them once, you've done them once, you never make the same mistake again. But... I had moments of mortification like that all the way through. Give me a couple more. These are so fantastic. Well, it's just like words that people would say that as however well read I was, uh, my, you know, that statistic that says if you're a kid that grows up in poverty, your vocabulary is like thousands of words short by the age of seven compared to someone who doesn't grow up in that background. Even with my book eating, like I'd make stupid mistakes, like just pronounce words wrong because I'd never heard them said. I'd read them, but I'd never heard them said. And so I'd turn up at like... um I, I was studying politics and I would turn up at a supervision because in Cambridge you get one-on-one -on -one teaching, which is like incredible. So it's just you and this extraordinarily intelligent person. And then I was saying things like hegemony for hegemony and, you know, just I was pronouncing everything wrong and I didn't realize until I was in a lecture and then in a lecture someone would say that when I'm just like, God, oh, Jesus Christ, you know, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just shooting off all these signals that I don't know jack <laughs> But the weird thing was, I keep saying, I realize I keep saying the weird thing, but it was fucking weird. But I got to the end of the first year and again, I had no idea uh, where I was in the pecking order. I didn't know whether what I was doing was any good. I didn't know whether the leap I had made was a leap too far, whether I really was convinced that I was going to be kicked out, that I was going to fail because it's a really intense academic experience and I worked my butt off, right? I played sport, I did plays, I did, I drank, I did all the stuff you're supposed to do at university. All of it. And when there's 10 men for every woman, why not? <laughs> but I got to the exams in June and had like a total meltdown. 
And like, what am I doing here? I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. Why did I even think of coming here? And one of my friends found me walking around the garden, like talking to myself, just going, this is like, I mean, okay, so this is it. This is it. I mean, I'm a fraud. I'm a total fake. So kick me out now. Don't even have to sit the exams. You know, this is literally what I was doing. And he was shaking me, going, well, you catch yourself on like, Jesus Christ, you know. And I'm like, no, you don't understand, do you? You know, you don't. And he was just like, so he took me, got me a pint of Guinness, sat me down and said, you're going to kick ass. I still didn't believe him. But I kicked ass. Like, I got the highest mark in the university in politics wow. in my year. And I'm like, even my supervisor wrote to me and said, this is incredible. And then the next year, I said, so does this mean I can, like, you know, not have to be so intense? So I set up a da- <laughs> so I set up a dance company. I asked him how many essays I could get away with writing without being kicked out. Amazing how your mind changes. How few? Yeah. How few essays can I write and still get through the second year? Because I didn't have exams at the end of the second year. And he said, okay. He says, well, you know you won't get the highest mark again. You know you won't replicate that if you don't do what you did. And I said, I'm okay with that. I want to set up a dance company. And I did. And I thought, when else am I going to get the chance to do this? And had a bunch of people just wrote and choreographed and floundered where, about the place like an agent. Where did where did that come from? The desire to put up a dance company. Well, all the drama I had done at school and the cross oh. community work, and I'd been in every musical known to man, like Oliver the King and I, Annie. I'd been in all of them, jumping about like a little squirt, and I loved dance. You know, I, it was just always, and I just thought, no, I want to choreograph. I want to. So I wrote a production, auditioned people. You know, just did this whole thing based on Dante's Inferno, (laughs) corralled all my friends into doing things like selling tickets and putting up posters and and just and I was still doing plays as well and was doing a play with a couple of old Etonians, you know, these really posh guys who spoke like this and horror, you know, called me by my second name and everything. And um, yeah, and I said, no, I'm going to live this experience. I am going to have this full experience. And. I'm really glad I did because there was a bit of me that had this enormous chip on my shoulder about where I'd come from and I didn't have the insouciance that these guys had. You know, they felt like they belonged here. This was, Their whole life was about being here. To me, it was the most ridiculous thing that ever happened. And once I realized that I could hold my own academically, that I could do that, I thought, now I can relax. Because I'd had a guy one day who came, who was... Weirdly, with my friend Richard, who had helped me with the the cutlery situation, and we're walking through the courtyard, and as if I wasn't there, this guy turned to Richard and said, so I don't really understand why she's here, as if I wasn't standing there. And he said, what do you mean? He goes, well, it's not like anyone from her family has been here. It's not like her parents have been here. So I don't understand why she's here. And Richard looked at him and he said, because she fucking earned it. And then the two of us just wandered off and left him standing there. And six months later, I found the same guy up a tree, drunk off his head, um, just like, I don't know, talking nonsense. And he fell out of the tree and just at my feet. And I just thought, this says it all. This is like, you know, you dickhead. 
<laughs> but of course, he would have gone on to make a load of money in the city. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Is your is your dance uh, company still around? Oh God, no! I only did it at uni, uh, but it okay. was great. It was great. So, what was the focus uh, of study at your college? Oh, all the colleges do all different subjects. Oh, okay. So it's a weird thing where you do uh, you're part of a college, but you're also part of a faculty. So we had a mixture of medics, um, lawyers, uh, classics, anthropology. The, uh, and the, you studied all. Yeah, the, the entire spectrum was studied at the college, but different people were doing different subjects. So three of us were doing politics. Um, I think there were maybe in my year, I think there were maybe 12 doing law, five or six doing medicine. So you didn't get your degree in journalism? Engineers. No, I got my, my degree in social and political science. And then after I went to work for The Guardian, I actually worked for The Guardian on the commercial side of the company for a while. And the editorial side headhunted me from the commercial side. Um, the editor asked me if I wanted to write for the paper instead of bringing money in for it. And they sent me to the University of Sheffield to do my journalism. That's fantastic. Exams. Were there moments when you were studying political history mm. at Cambridge mm. when you thought, and and they talked about Northern Ireland, where mm. you thought, oh, this isn't exactly right? Yeah, but I, I still get that. I mean, I've had that. I've had that in... Like around people who are like really great journalists who don't really get it. What's the, what are the common myths or uh, misreported things? Well, one of the things are the things that don't get reported. So, for instance, what people don't know is people still get shot and still get beaten. They don't realize, even though there's been a peace accord. That's for right. Well, Ten plus years. Yeah. So for like, oh my god, yeah, coming up to twenty years, there's been um, a peace agreement, but. You don't eliminate those things overnight. The poverty is still, I mean, excruciating for a lot of people. The areas that are the poorest are the ones that had the worst of the troubles. They're also the areas that were policed by the paramilitaries. So for a long time, you wouldn't have called the police if something happened to you. You called the paramilitaries, and that's who sorted it out. So you still have those sectarian, and you'll see them sometimes on the news when there's riots or whatever, but that goes on all, all year long. There are incidences and difficulties and that includes some people being shot it includes attacks on the police force etc etc so that kind of stuff still carries on so people don't necessarily know that because it doesn't get reported in the national media loads of things that i've had said to me along the lines of well the ira never hurt their own people oh and i'm like that's a, i know that's right, bullshit right but i've had like perfectly educated intelligent people say that to me and i'm like no 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 uh, that is certainly not the case. And I mean, I can I could like repeat so many examples of where that happened in my life. People that I knew who were killed by the IRA and were part of the Catholic community or who were attacked by the IRA, etc. I mean, it's extraordinary to me that people don't realize it. But I'm always having to remind myself that what I know, I can't assume that other people even have an inkling of it. And I'm always ready to help people learn a bit about it when they ask those questions. But I'm still, when it's a, especially if it's journalists who ask me, I'm like, no, come on. I mean, you haven't even got the excuse of having to go to a library to research this. I mean, a couple of Google clicks and you'll find out virtually anything that you need to know. And there's no excuse for ignorance in this day and age. There, there just isn't. You know, you can find this stuff out if you if you look yeah. and you don't have to look hard. Yeah. Let's talk about your emotional life. Mm. 
You know, you grew up in this environment. You had the poverty. You mm-hmm. had the violence around you. You had a mom who sounds um, not really emotionally equipped yeah. to, to deal with life. Yeah. Um, a dad who certainly had a very small view mm. of women's place in the world. Mm. Um, what what are the issues that you struggle with? Um, are you able to get in touch with your feelings? You know, I, the, the the reason I ask is when I when I meet people who are. Um, great thinkers like yourself, people who are intellectual. Mary just made a face. I forgot. I was complimenting (laughs) an Irish Catholic. I should (laughs) know to never do that. Um, The thing that they struggle with is um, being in touch with their emotional life because issues often just get processed intellectually and Mm. they bypass what one is feeling. Yeah. Are you able to feel your feelings and describe them and process them and talk with other people about them? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, something happened actually here in L.A. last fall where I was at a movie and I was at a movie with my husband and it was I can't remember the name of it. The Brad Pitt one where the Second World War where they're in the tank, you know, it's about mm-hmm. the guys in the, I can't remember the name of it. And. I actually, I've n- never had a reaction like this, really, but I had to get up and run out of the cinema because the noises the, of the shooting was brought something back that I had never thought about since. And I was hyperventilating and had to run out and get some fresh air. I've never, ever, ever had that experience. There was something in the sound that those bullets were making that just triggered something. And was it a specific memory it triggered? No, it was a feeling. Um, it was just unadulterated fear and panic and helplessness. And it, it, you know, I know of, I know my memories and I know the things that happened. And I, I mean, I've written about them, so I know what it was like to be a child hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. You know, I stood in a kitchen while someone came and put a gun to my mother's head and told her they'd blow it off. And I was 11 years old and standing witness in that. Now, all of these things I know and all of these things I've one way or another coped with and dealt with over the years. But something in that sound sent me someplace that I've never been other than in some primal way at some point that I can't even begin to deconstruct. But I was talking to one of my very close childhood friends recently who actually her 20-year-old son died a few months ago of a heroin overdose. And she said to me, you know, she moved to Germany at the same time I moved to England because we both wanted to get out. And she said, you know, the reason I brought my kids up in a different country was to protect them from the stuff that we had to face, from, from that misery, from the violence, from the poverty. And here I am with my 20-year-old son dead. And... She and I have the kind of relationship where if we're in the same room, we don't even have to explain what we're thinking and feeling. We have always had that connection. I've always had that connection with one of my younger sisters as well, where there is no need for words. And we're Irish. We can talk, right? We have, (laughs) we can fucking speak. 
What is it about the Irish and the love of language, both talking and And the singing writing? and the writing. And it is, and it's the same, it's musical as well. Um, and there's something weird. The more I'm away from the country, the more I realize how lyrical the, the way we speak is. Mm. And even the Northern Irish, who sound kind of harsh and scary, right? Mm -hmm. You know, compared to the Southerners, we sound like we're going to beat your bollocks in at any minute. But even then, there's a, a you know, there's a, lyrical quality to it but there there's just that that weird connection where we would talk all the time uh not just as girls but i used to sit and talk with i had a lot of male friends growing up like a lot of male friends and sometimes we'd just sit on walls and we would talk about everything that was happening about the pressures that they were under about family issues about shitty schools about you know whatever was going on and we would just talk and connect and we built an incredible strength from that. I mean, I am so eternally grateful for the, the people that I had in my life as, as a child and as a young adult because it absolutely created a foundation that we didn't have in our wider society or in our families mm -hmm. for a lot of us. We found that connection together and we're still there for each other. And even over the years when we've got the calls, the inevitable calls about who's dead, because... I'm 45 years of age. I tell you, you know, I've lost more people through being shot or, you know, blown up or tortured than anybody wants to have had in their life. How many people would you? Oh, I couldn't I couldn't even count. But even even just looking at the boys I grew up with, you know, in my immediate street, at least 10 of them were dead by the time we were 35. And that's just in roughly the same street. And I remember them sitting on a wall and we all had dreams so those of us that made it to feel like those of us that got through there is an incredible strength in that and i i can't i can't even articulate it i suppose if i needed to offload on something around these issues or i, I could just call michelle and there'd be no need for anything to be explained and that goes way way deep way deep but I think I find it hard to unpick the differences between the bits of it that were to do with the poverty and the bits of it that were to do with the troubles because they're interlinked. But there's definitely a strain of it that is to do with your place in society and being told that you are not worth something. And the thing that I have, the greatest problem coming to terms with is like people said to me, but look what you've done. You've done all these things. Like, Shouldn't you just feel great about it? And I'm like... Well, I'm never going to be satisfied. I mean, I suppose any ambitious person is never satisfied. Otherwise, what's the point? But I feel like I have to constantly prove myself to myself over and over and over again. What, what are the, the, the greatest hits of negative self-talk? Oh, God. I mean, I think it's the, it's the classics. You know, there is the classics that everyone goes through. And I, I've probably done them all. You know, I'm I'm worthless. Who am I to think I could do this, you know, I don't belong here. Why would anyone love me? <laughs> you know, it's all the classics. It's there's nothing unusual about, I think, how I would deal with these things. I think everybody who's ever felt insecure or out of place would have had exactly the same thoughts. Have there been any pieces of your childhood that you have um, really gotten to a, a into a quiet kind of space and really felt and mourned with tears what either happened or didn't get to happen. 
Oh God, yeah, loads and loads. And I think probably the thing that I carry the most is the people who didn't make it. Absolutely. And I don't just mean the people who ended up, you know, being shot or whatever. I mean, the people who ended up drinking themselves to death, the people who were so emotionally wrecked by what happened to them that they just couldn't find the strength from wherever it might have come to get through. And I, all those lives destroyed, that I find very difficult to process because I just, I just feel it was such a waste, such a waste of potential, such a... None of these young people deserved to have that life any more than the kids anywhere in the world today living in misery deserve to have it happen to them. And I feel that loss all the time. I feel that loss. How do you feel your relationship with your parents and having to be a parent yourself to your siblings, how do you mm. feel that's affected you, if it, if at all? I don't know how it could not. But yeah, I don't think that. And your mother's instability. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's any way that it that it wouldn't affect you. I mean, I like to say that I got lucky in that I was uh, without a maternal instinct, so I didn't have to make one of those judgments about do I have children, um, do I not? I just knew I didn't want kids. I imagine if I was the sort of woman who had that. Um, it would have been even harder for me because I would have constantly worried about whether I was repeating mistakes, whether I was capable of being a good mother, etc. I've never had to think about that. It's just, I, you know, the culture tells you you're supposed to have these feelings, but I've not had them. But I've got a lot of children in my life. and Nieces my, and nephews. Yeah, like gazillions of them and godchildren up the wazoo. You know, they're just like everywhere and they're expensive. Expensive, <laughs> but um, so I've never had to, to think think too hard about that. But I, in many ways, also feel like I did my mothering. You know, I think one of the hardest things was leaving my youngest brother to go to university because he was only seven, and I knew I was leaving him in a very difficult place. And whilst I went back every at the end of every term, um. I still knew, I still felt like I had let him down terribly. And like I'd go home and he would show me his report cards and things because he wanted to show me what he was doing. But for a long time, my parents didn't even send him to school. So he ended up not getting the education he was supposed to get. And that his that he has done what he's done with his life is incredible to me. It's just, you know, he's a caretaker in a college and he's got two young kids and... I mean, his his wife died suddenly a few months ago and watching how he's had to deal with that. So weirdly, in the past few months, I have found myself back in that role of taking care of him as as a grown man. I'm back in that mm-hmm. position with him, which is which I'm kind, of, I'm kind of grateful for in the sense that I can be there for him. I can do this. I can help him through this. But I felt terrible about leaving him behind. Talk about your mom's suicide attempts and what you remember thinking or feeling and how yeah. you how you've come to terms with what you had to see and yeah. feel. Was, I used to get told that um, I'll sort it. My name at home is Maureen, not Mary. Um, one of those weird twists of like Irish families. Where you, Maureen? Maureen. Oh, Maureen. And Maureen, as you guys would yeah. say, Maureen. And um, and so people would say, oh, Maureen will sort that out. She's the smart one. 
So the assumption was that because I was intellectually kind of driven and curious, that that must mean that I'm emotionally equipped to sort through the detritus of all of this. So it was sort of delegated to me. And I I took that responsibility quite seriously in that if there was a fight in the house, if there was violence in the house, if, if my mom was going off the rails, then I was the one designated to sort it out. Now, it didn't matter whether I was nine or 19. I was supposed to be the one sorting it out. Uh, so, I mean, that's just wrong. You know, when you look back on it, you're like, that is just plain wrong. A nine-year-old should not be bandaging up her mother's wrists. I also knew enough to know that she was cutting herself the wrong way. <laughs> so I knew that if she had done it in a different way, it would have been fatal. So I was aware that there, you know, that there were issues here that she didn't want to go all the way. Uh, I'd often have to go around the house finding her stash of vodka bottles. So they were always in the toilet cistern. You know, again, the classics. You know, it's like if someone is a is an alcoholic, they everyone hides their booze in the same place. So it's like you don't have to be a genius to figure this stuff out. It's under the towels. It's in the cistern. It's under the mattress. And so I'd go around collecting these things and throwing them out, and then she'd go berserk. You know, because like she couldn't. You know, she'd go berserk. And of course, my dad was teetotal. He hasn't even tasted alcohol, so he has no clue what it's like to have the slightest high. He doesn't know what he doesn't know what a buzz is. He hasn't a clue. So, for him, alcohol is only a disease, is only like an evil. So, how do you deal with these two living in the same house? You know. Hmm. So he'd beat the living shit out of her. She'd have another drink. Blah blah blah. And then, and you know what it's like with these things? They're cyclical. So. She'd end up um, being institutionalized. Then she'd have a dry period. Uh, she'd be almost like a normal human being, and then off the rails again. I, I get the feeling as you as you talk about the you know patching her mom's mm. arms up and all that stuff that um, that it was set against a backdrop of such chaos and violence and sadness to begin with mm. that it really couldn't have been the volume couldn't have been that loud on it like it was just one of another just another piece of chaos in the big pie yeah i suppose you'd think that except the idea of home as a sanctuary the idea of home being the one place in a storm that if you go there you'll be okay so in many ways that was amplified in many ways, that was worse than everything going on outside because for all the unpredictability of that, for all the strangeness of it, for all the danger, the one place where I should have felt okay and secure, there were there were all these other things happening. And, I mean, fortunately for us, because my dad didn't drink and he, whilst he had his own issues and violence being one of them, was there. We knew he'd be there when we got home from school. My mum would just vanish for weeks sometimes. Like we wouldn't have a clue where she was. You know, I'd just sit staring out the window at night, waiting to see if she'd turn a corner. And if your mum goes missing in a environment like that, it's scary. We just didn't know where she was. But we knew that he'd be there. And we knew that social services weren't taking us away as long as he was there. And that was something. Which is why this why school was so important in my life because it was the stable place it was my sanctuary I didn't have it at home 
And I think for friends... And, fr- and it sounds like it's where you discovered yourself, where you discovered yeah. who you really are. And it gave I was you allowed to. a way to thrive. Yeah, I was yeah. allowed to. And, and it was, this is about you and what you want from life, not what other people are asking for you and not the random stuff that people are throwing in your way, you know. So weirdly the home stuff took on a greater significance in that environment, I think. And, you know, it's like as a teenager, right? You're like all over the show. So like rage against the machine or what when you're 14, 15 in that environment, you know, just like, I mean, God, if you hate your parents in a normal situation, you know, you're just like, whoa. So so what were some of the primary emotions that you would feel when your mom would make an attempt or she would go missing? Well, you would take it personally, wouldn't you? Because if your mother leaves, you feel abandoned. And would, it, you, would you be sad? Would you be angry? Would you be? Well, I would often go into uh, management mode first because I saw my job as making sure the younger kids didn't get frightened and making sure that they felt there was someone around who was going to make sure that they were dressed for school in the morning and that kind of stuff. So you didn't really allow yourself to feel? I did on my own. But my first reaction was very much, okay, I'm not the important thing here. These guys are. Well, paint a picture for me of when you did then have some time on your own to process. Mm. Mm. Paint a picture of that for me. Well, I think it's just, and again, some of it is just not no different from, I think, what normal teenagers would experience, except it was less imagined, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think any young person that has lived in a house with a parent who's an alcoholic or an addict or has mental health problems will understand those sorts of feelings and what you what you do with them, where you put them, like whatever the wider circumstances. And I don't think it gets enough attention, you know, how kids and young people feel in those circumstances because you're at the mercy of someone else's illness all the time and this is the person who's supposed to take care of you so you get angry as hell i mean you get really 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 like so is that your primary emotion yeah around just, these just things? on a really gut level you are furious you know but at the same time i felt deeply deeply sorry for her because i knew that this she was out of control and i knew that she didn't choose to live that way. I mean, who chooses to live that way? You could see that she was sick. Yeah, I could see that she was troubled. I could see that uh, that just her existence was extremely difficult. And uh, like with brothers and sisters and other people, I would try to explain this to them and say, you know, we have to take care of her. We have to try and get her through it. And I was just, they thought I was, they thought I was mad because I tried to understand her. Uh, they just like wrote her off entirely and I couldn't really do that but I've had to do it as an adult you know we haven't spoken for maybe 10 years uh, because it got to the point where I just thought I can't I can't fix you I can't deal with you Uh, if you've never admitted to your problems which she never has then she's never got the right kind of help because she refuses to believe she has a problem then there's a biddy that grows up eventually and goes i can either carry this with me for the rest of my existence or i cannot and i chose not to it sounds like a healthy healthy decision with somebody that 
that refuses to um, yeah seek help in any way seek help yeah. or, or even admit they have a, a a problem yeah it's it's a it's you know that takes some doing to go that many years and cause so much chaos and still not like face up to your demons as it were you know you know yeah you know sometimes I wish I had like a video camera and I just videoed her the whole time going now you tell me you don't have a problem you know but I think you just I think as a as a young adult and a young woman I found. I still carried guilt. I still carried our sense of responsibility because in my formative years, that's what everything was about. And I, I literally reached a point where I have to make a mature decision here. You know, I'm a grown person. I have my own life to live. And and that's OK. Turns out it's OK. I can do that. Now, whether you call that disassociation, call it what you want. I don't think so. I think that's uh, a healthy boundary. But yeah, because when I was younger, I couldn't do it. But now I'm, yeah. But, Better than the insanity of, of, you know, enabling that person and hoping that they're going to change and then you know, resenting them for not seeing the light. One of the interesting things is because in my work in life, I write about these issues. So I write about addictions and mental health and having witnessed so many things firsthand it does give me a level of insight but also because i spend so much of my time interviewing people with lived experience as well as experts uh all the whole spectrum of of people and you know if i can't learn something from that then shame on me and one of the things that i have learned is that i have it within my power to do things for myself and it's 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 not an overly complicated thing. It's just I can I can do that. It's all right. And I'm not being a bad daughter or a neglectful person. I've you know, there's just only so much you can do. Is it hard for you to ask for help when you need it? Oh yeah. God yeah. I'm terrible. I am like really, really bad at it. When was the last time you remember asking for help and what what was it about? Oh God, you know. I mean, I ask all the time for like small stuff. No, you I'm know? talking about like, Ooh. like. I don't know. I mean, it was probably probably when my brother's wife died, because I just felt that I didn't really know what I could do that was best for him, and so then I turned to the one person who, if I do need help, absolutely always I turn to, and that's one of my younger sisters, my sister Lisa, who is like a dynamo on every level. She's got five kids of her own, all of whom are amazing and wonderful and cool. Um, but she's the person that I can say, I can't deal with this. I can't, I can't do this. And like my husband, I've, we've been together 15 years. He knows me pretty well. And, but even then he has to tell me, just ask for help. You know, he'll, he'll you know, he'll, well, he just says I'm stubborn. <laughs> he goes, you're so stubborn. Just ask, you know, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> and I'm like, I know, but for me, I have to be able to stand on my own two feet. I have to be independent. Everything is about self-sufficiency. Uh, you know, I have programmed myself that way through the years. I never want to be at the mercy of something I can't control. I never want to be that way. Yet all of us. Of course we are. Logically, are. logically, we're. You can't get through life without having those moments. You can't get through life with being, without being shunted from pillar to post. So you can imagine, like I'm like a spinning top when things happen. That I'm like, okay, okay. But the other thing I do, I, I am incredibly good in a crisis. <laughs> weirdly, mm -hmm. so uh, any crisis, I'm your gal. I can step up. I go into a zone. I can sort shit out pretty quickly. 
the logical part of my brain will click in when everyone else is screaming. My, I have that same thing. Things slow down for me. Yeah. When, like when the earthquake happened 20 yeah. years ago, yeah. I just immediately was like, okay, let's secure food. Let's make sure that yeah. the gas is turned off. Yeah. We have water. Uh, call the family back home. Let them know we're okay. okay. Um, yeah. Where are we going to sleep tonight? Um, there, one of the first things I said to my wife was, we have that pasta primavera uh, in the in the refrigerator. If we keep the door closed, they'll stay cold for a exact, long time. But that's exactly how my head works, because yeah. I will be in any kind of crisis situation. Just I'll be the person going, okay, I'll assume a leadership role automatically. Um, I'll delegate. I'll, you know, that's just, that's just who I am. And I, and it's, and it's weird. I might have a breakdown two weeks later or something, but I'll get your ass through the immediate problem. I, I did. I had a physical breakdown <laughs> yeah, where my, yeah. my body, like yeah. two weeks later, but, I had rashes yeah. and oh, it was horrible. Yeah. 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 I just no, held I've, it all in. Yeah. 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 I've had that, but you know, in the moment, no problem. Sure. I seemed strong. Yeah. Well, Mary, thank you so much for, uh, for coming. Uh, I, just really had a great time talking to you, and uh, I know the listeners are gonna are gonna love you and love uh, hearing this. So thank well, you so much, and thank you for what for what you do. Well, it's been a pleasure, and um, you know it's been great talking to you with well talking to you for the past six months on different things. So thank you so much. Yeah, and if people want to get a hold of you or read any of your stuff, your book is called Austerity Bites. Um, it's out in paperback in the U.S., so it's on Amazon and the. Ver- you know, any of the mm. online sites, you'll be able to get it. And there's a website for the book, austeritybitesuk.com. And you can find out more about me and my work and links to the journalism, etc. all on that. Okay. Thanks, Mary. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much, uh, as, much as I did. Uh, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple different ways to support this podcast if you feel so inclined. You can support us financially by going to our homepage. Uh, the website is mentalpod.com. And uh, you can make a one-time PayPal donation there or become a recurring monthly donor, which uh, uh, is greatly, greatly appreciated. God bless uh, those of you that are monthly uh, donors. It, uh, it really helps. Um, you can also, if you're going to shop at Amazon, do it through the search portal on our homepage, and we'll get a couple nickels from Amazon. doesn't cost you anything. You can also um, support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about us, or by spreading the word through social media about the podcast. All those things uh, help, and it uh, it really adds up. Enough of my yak, and let's get to the surveys. We've got a gigantic stack. I don't think I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through all of these, but I found them all to be uh, compelling for one reason or another. So, um, yeah, let's get into it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by and by the way ivy is about 10 feet from me and her breath smells like it is right in my face that is uh and i'm uh got a little green tea maybe that'll maybe a little uh battle some of the stink this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself ugly little girl she so you know she's bremming with confidence She's straight. She's in her 30s, uh, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, never been sexually abused, uh, been emotionally abused. Uh, 
She writes, uh, I was about 12. I came home from school and sat at the table. I talked to my stay-at-home dad about my day. We got in an argument about God knows what. My memories are hazy, but I have an opinion. His opinion was different. He ridicules my opinion, makes me feel small, laughs at me. This makes me angry, so I start pushing his buttons. We go back and forth until he is furious. His face contorts and his mouth does that thing I will never forget. It's some cross between a snarl and a sneer. Then he's after me, chasing me through the house. If he catches me, he'll hit. So I run in my room, barely beating him to my door. My heart is pounding and I'm screaming, crying. I slam my bedroom door in his face and hit the lock just as he starts turning the handle. He's shaking the doorknob, threatening to beat down the door, banging on the door, screaming at me. No way in hell am I opening that door. I run to the side of my bed, cowering beneath my desk, shaking, crying, so afraid that the attacker is at my door, and maybe today he'll beat the door down and get me. I hate him. I hate my dad. It's my fault. I hate myself. I'm a bad girl with a shitty back-talk mouth, and I made him do this. I pushed him to this. Why didn't I just keep my damn mouth shut? Why does he hate me? I hate me. We do this every single day, for years. It stops when I'm 14 or 15 and I stop engaging him. I come home from school and go to my room and don't come out until my mom comes home. There are lots of other stories where my dad should have been my protector and was not. I'm not sure if he was trying to toughen me up by letting me fight my own battles or if he just couldn't, quote, see me. Um... Any positive experience with your abusers? I loved my dad, and I know that he loves me. Oh, no. I I love my dad, and I know that he loves me. Uh, He was Mr. Mom in the 80s when that was still weird. He didn't have the emotional tools to be a stay-at-home parent, and I think he was battling his own mental health demons, including depression. I later found out that he has self-medicated with pot for most of his life. He was devoted to his family and to my mother. We lived in a rural part of the country, and he supported my 4-H projects and took us uh, calving, caving and hiking and to the lake and to baseball practice. It was confusing that my worst nightmare, the attacker at the door jiggling the locked doorknob, was also supposed to be my protector. Darkest thoughts. After I had a baby, I'd get what must have been postpartum depression. I would fantasize about cutting us all to pieces with a kitchen knife. When my husband came home from work, he'd find our bloody dismembered bodies all over the house. Mercifully, these thoughts would pass, but I was so shocked and appalled by those thoughts that I'd never tell. There must be thousands of women and children that are in danger every day, but no one will tell because of the potential consequences. The first time it happened after having my first child, I called my husband at work and told him how overwhelmed I felt and that I was having scary thoughts. His only reaction was, don't hurt the baby. That's when I knew I was to keep my crazy to myself. Darkest Secrets I lost control with my kids several times when they were little. I spanked, not in that this hurts me more than it hurts you way, but in the this definitely hurts you more than it hurts me way. I could see stars and feel my ears ringing, and I would smack their butts until my rage had passed. I never left bruises, and it was only on the butt, but I was so ashamed that I'd become exactly who I'd sworn I'd never be as a parent, my father. I'm so, so ashamed, and would give anything to go back to those moments and swoop my children away from that insane woman who was hurting and scaring them. This probably happened happened 10 to 12 times over a six-year period, but I would threaten to, quote, give spankings daily. 
The last time I laid a hand on one of my children was three years ago. My most challenging child was mouthing off for the thousandth time that day, and I cuffed him upside the head. It actually, quote, wasn't in a moment of rage and was almost an afterthought that, unlike Spanking's past, was not even meant to hurt him, but it caught him off guard and he lost his balance. As he turned to catch himself, he tripped over his feet and smacked his head hard into a wooden door frame and he went down. I can see all of this in ultra slow motion. My heart stopped. He was quiet for a moment, then he screamed and cried. Thank God he was conscious, and immediately developed a huge goose egg above his eye, right at the hairline. I had never hurt any of my kids in this way. I knew butt spankings, which had, for the most part, ended years ago. Uh, I was almost exclusively a threatener at this point, but not life-threatening. This felt completely different and was so horrifying and scary. I cried and apologized to him over and over, but I will never forget the look of hurt, fear, and betrayal in his eyes. I was now completely my father. My thoughtless actions could have hurt or killed my child, and I could have easily been that monster you see on the news with a kid in the ICU with brain swelling. I can just read the comment section now. Who would hurt a child? I hope she gets raped in prison every day. At least someone else would hate me as much as I hate myself. In the next few days, I was terrified that someone would ask him about his very obvious injury. I told him to tell the truth, that he hit his head on the door. I told him that he could tell the whole story if he wanted to, that I didn't want him to lie to anyone, and I deserved any consequences that came of it. I don't know who asked him what. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't bear to ask, but DCFS never came knocking. I told my husband the whole story, watched the look of disgust cross his face. I guess I finally hurt the baby. As I said, this was three years ago, and as of that day, I've never laid a hand on any of my kids, nor threatened to spank or in any other way hurt them. They are all preteen and teens now, and ha we have a peaceful home. I will never, ever forgive myself for any of this, most especially my son's head injury, and I imagine they all will carry the scars I left for the rest of their lives. We've talked about these things as a family, and I've apologized so many times. If I've done one tiny thing better than my father, it's that. My father has never acknowledged his mistakes, let alone apologized. You know, as I read that, I think uh, that is so fantastic that you've apologized and that you've recognized and and you need to forgive yourself. You need to forgive yourself. We're all human. We all do things that we regret. And you sound like a really well-meaning mom that was overwhelmed and wasn't raised with the the tools you know and i would imagine too when if you're in a if you were raised in a house where the threat of physical violence was constantly looming um you know that's going to give you some ptsd or something like that that then gets triggered when you begin to feel overwhelmed you, you know you talked about hitting until you were seeing stars and your ears were ringing you know that sounds to me like a like a physical response the, you know like a like a switch being flipped anyway um sending you some sending you some love and really really thanking you for um being so honest about that um you're you are to be commended for changing and that in the whatever uh, whatever knighthoods we uh, were able to uh, to give maybe we should start knighting people on the on the show 
That would uh, <laughs> that would be an interesting low budget ceremony. Get a lightsaber. You, I hereby bequeath to you the uh, title of. Uh, I don't know. I'm bored with this riff. <laughs> anyway, I I just uh, my hat is off to to parents who break the cycle, and you you are breaking the cycle. This is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a <laughs> woman who calls herself Fuckface Unbearable. Her struggles are depression and anxiety. And what helps her, she writes, I, I tried some meds that were supposed to help with my migraines and depression, but they left me with a constant mild headache and foggy. Recently, my husband and I have uh, made it a point to have a long hug at the end of the day. It helps more than I ever would have thought. It makes me feel loved like I never have before. And listening to this podcast makes me feel like I'm not alone. Thank you. Thank you. Right back at you. This is from the uh, Psych Ward Experiences, filled out by Alice Wonderland. Wonderland? <laughs> Jackass. Uh, it's like the uh, the Jewish superhero, Superman. Uh she was hospitalized uh, as a psychi- psychiatric inpatient a total of five times. Only one of those admissions was voluntary. My longest stay was five months. I was ordered in by the mental health tribunal after another suicide attempt. Describe your experience. The first four days were horrible. Restraints, injected sedatives, seclusion rooms. It was like something out of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. The last hospitalization, however, was what turned things around. It was a two-week stay in a facility that was all about long-term health and well-being and really pushed the idea of self-care instead of relying on others to, quote, save us. I can honestly say that this stay helped me to shift my thinking and probably saved my life. I've gone from numerous suicide attempts resulting in resuscitation and life support, severe self-harm and alcoholism, to a year without the need for any hospitalization, no self-harm, and only a few minor relapses related to alcohol. Without the last hospitalization, uh, I am pretty sure I'd be six feet under. Congrats on uh, on your progress. That's fantastic. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself battle scarred. And um, I'm just going to read a portion of it. She didn't completely fill it out. Uh, She's straight in her 20s, raised in a slightly uh, dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, And she's been emotionally abused. And I just want to read her darkest secret. She writes, I'm a compulsive skin picker. I'm afraid I'll always have the scars all over my body. They'll never fade and I'll keep picking, making them worse and creating new scars. I'm afraid I'll never come to terms with the fact that I've damaged my skin and I will never look, quote, normal again. I'll never be able to wear a sleeveless wedding dress or wear a bathing suit on a beach vacation with friends. I'm afraid I'll never accept that reality, that I'll have to wear the evidence of my mental illness on my body for the rest of my life, so I'll just continue to hide it under clothes and by avoiding social situations that could expose my secret by coming up with bullshit excuses for why I'm covered in scars. Yeah, I had adult chicken pox. Or my favorite, I was splattered with hot oil from a lantern when I went camping with my friends one summer. Right. Well, I... 
I hope I hope you can get to a place where you can have compassion for yourself and the fact that we all feel overwhelmed and the thing that the minor difference that separates us is how we choose to cope with that feeling of being overwhelmed and um the one thing we can change is to just find coping mechanisms that are healthier than the ones we've been using. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey, filled out by uh, Libby, and her issues are depression, self-harm, and self-loathing. And what helps her? Music, diary, drawing and pen, stabbing a chair, burning paper, baths, and running. I kind of like the stabbing a chair and burning paper. I don't know if those happen at the same time. Maybe she. I guess you couldn't. You couldn't do it while you're taking a bath. You could stab a chair while you're running, run in place while stabbing a chair. That's some good cardio. This is shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Bearded Otter. He is straight in his twenties, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, never been sexually abused. Uh, he's been emotionally abused. He writes, as a child, I had the trifecta of bad parenting, an angry, insecure stepdad, a passive mother, and an absent father. Let me let me just illustrate this with an awfulsome story. My stepdad always assumed I was gay because I never went out on dates. So instead of talking to me like any loving parent would, he decided to test me. When I was about 16, he invited me into his bedroom one morning. He was a cop and had gotten a hold of a videotape from a prostitution sting operation. The footage showed a stripper dancing for a bachelor party in a hotel room. One of the guys gives her some extra money and she strips naked and lays on the couch. Each of the guys proceed to line up and take turns rubbing their face into the woman's crotch. Needless to say, I found the footage disgusting and didn't want to watch it with him. I left the room and failed his test. He got angry, talked with his other cop buddies, and came to the conclusion that I was gay. He held this against me for months, refusing to speak to me. I had no dog in this fight since I was a child. I was always treated like a disappointment and talked down to. My mother, despite her love, never tried to stop his emotional abuse and left me feeling lonely. And my natural father, despite his promises, never took the time to develop a relationship with me any positive experience with your abusers. My stepdad would take me to movies. I remember seeing the original Star Wars when it was re-released in the 90s and hold that memory sacred. It makes me not want to hate my stepdad, especially now. I'm 27 years old and have come a long way through therapy, meditative and mindful practices, and self-care. I see him now as the flawed, insecure, and hurt man that regrets his actions now. He has softened his demeanor and expresses his love for me frequently. I guess when I finally sit down with him and tell him about the pain he caused me, I will feel like I have some resolution with the past. But in the meantime, it does feel complicated. Darkest thoughts. Engaging in rough and dominating sex. I would like a woman to physically dominate me and... in nearly every way possible and vice versa. It makes me sad that I might not get to live out this fantasy if I decide to stay in my current relationship. I considered breaking it off and getting onto FetLife.com or join some other kinky community. Darkest Secrets. Right after graduating college, I moved across the state and my then-girlfriend broke up with me. A few months later, she and my then-best college friend started dating. 
I lacked the emotional control and self-care, and as you would imagine, lost my mind. I spent every day stewing in rage. I harassed them through text and online messages, threatening violence, and trying to hurt them emotionally. I eventually stopped when he told me to fuck off. Even after this, rage dwelt in my chest and continued to poison my mind and soul for nearly half a year. However, looking back on it, I still feel guilt over my actions. I've thought I've thought apologizing to them, but I'm also sad at how poorly I treated myself. But I'm so much better now, so that gives me comfort. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Dominant and submissive role play. I could flip back and forth. I'm fascinated by those BDSM style relationships where one partner has to sign a contract and submit completely to the other. I would love to do that for about a week, then go back to watching Netflix after it got old. What, if anything, do you wish for? The chance to be part of something bigger than myself and feel wanted, like a church or a startup business. I don't want to be a slave to someone else's expectations anymore. Uh, being a part of something bigger than yourself is one of the greatest things in life, and um, I encourage you to I encourage you to pursue that. Thank you. Thank you for that. This is, uh, these are some loves from a love off I did. Roxanne says, I love when I look into the face of one of my students and see they are feeling, see they are feeling really heard and basking in my attention. Kate writes, I love watching my boy uh, girl twins have their first conversations together. They are almost three. They are so funny and proper. And when Olivia convinces Finn to let her have a taste of his popsicle, she leans in and nibbles it like she's a calf. Nicholas writes, I love playing hooky from work to go to the library and write. I couldn't ever imagine leaving work to go to a library. God bless you. God bless you. Um, Nancy writes, I love being around other people who aren't afraid to share dark and painful realness. Uh, heartily agree. Christy writes, the smell of magnolias. I don't even know what magnolias smell like. Turns out they smell like ass. This is filled out by Kay. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey. Uh, she's straight in her 20s. Raised in a stable and safe environment. Never been sexually abused. Uh, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I think about killing myself at least once a day. I go to a job that I can't stand for eight hours a day. and don't want to do anything but go to sleep when I get home. The one thing I'm good at, playing music, seems so unreachable because, quote, being an adult is in the way. I constantly think about quitting my job and just focusing on music, but I'm terrified I won't succeed and I'll disappoint myself and my family. I'm also scared to pursue my dreams because I hate myself and my body. I'm afraid everyone is judging me because of my appearance. Darkest secrets. I was bullied a lot as a kid because I was overweight, and I think my issues with my body and myself came as a result of the trauma. I've never told anyone how much I was bullied because I was embarrassed, so I've been holding on to this shame, anxiety, and depression for most of my childhood and my entire adult life. I've never spoken to a therapist either because as far as I know, no one in my family has seen a therapist, let alone talked openly about their feelings, and I'm afraid I'll be judged or seen as weak by them. I don't think I've had it bad enough. I've had a bad enough life to see a therapist, so I've just never sought help. And I wanted to read this to tell you, go see a therapist. Who gives a shit what your family thinks? And there is no such thing 
There, there is no criteria to meet to go talk to a therapist. There, 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 there's no minimum that you need to reach. It's about your feelings. Are you not feeling? Are you feeling as if something is missing in your life, or there's an issue that keeps cropping up? That is a reason to go to therapy. So go. And you don't have to tell your family. Uh, here's some loves. Steven writes, I love when I walk by the open front door of the local art supply store and the sense of pencils, paper, and paint comes briefly wafting out. Um, Missy writes, blowing bubbles from the roof and watching people's faces below while they look for the source of the bubbles while trying to pop them as they walk by my loft. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Tracy writes, I love watching old childhood TV shows and movies, especially with our daughter. I bet that's got to be nice. This is a shame and secret survey. Hold on, sip of tea. Herbert says hello, by the way. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Bipolar Kitty. She's bisexual in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. She's been uh, physically and emotionally abused. She writes, My mother moved us away from our physically abusive father when I was four. I'm glad she was able to move us out of this, that situation, but looking back now, my mother was very emotionally abusive, so I'm not sure it was that much better. When my siblings and I were young, my mother always pretended she was dead. She would hold her breath and become unresponsive until we cried, and then she would burst out laughing. The memory that stands out the most is one winter when I was five. My mother said she heard something outside and was going to check it out. We heard her scream, and when we ran to the dining room window, we saw blood on the snow. We knew our mother had been killed. We started to sob and tried to hide. After a while, my mother burst in through the door and yelled, Psych! She had thrown food coloring into the snow. As I got older, she would call me skank and slut. And even though I was still a virgin, she told me I would never graduate. When I would have pan... Oh, and she called me a skank and a slut, even though I was still a virgin. She told me I would never graduate. Uh, when I would have panic attacks and fall to the floor hyperventilating, she would tell me to knock it off. There were many more events, but I think you get the picture. Yes, we do. And that is so, so fucked up. Any positive experiences? I do have good memories with my mother and can still have a good time with her, but I do not think of her as my mother. The only good memory I have with my father is when he took me and my siblings to Disneyland. We had fun, uh, but he bought us all shoes that were too small, so we developed sores and blisters on our feet. Darkest thoughts. I like to think about kidnapping and slowly torturing my husband's ex and then eventually killing her. Darkest secrets. I used to cut myself and burn myself with lighters. Only my husband knows that. My mother was too caught up in her own drama to notice my scabs and scars. She was too busy faking her death. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, being tied up and dominated by a hot girl. Nothing too extreme, but I do enjoy thinking about sex with girls. Sharing it makes me excited. Only my husband knows of my desires. Ooh, hold on. Music kicked in. Pause. Um, 
one. What if, what if anything do you wish for? I wish my mother would become less self-centered and focus on giving my youngest brother a stable childhood. How do you feel after writing these things down? Kind of empty. I feel I was robbed of most of my childhood. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Don't give up hope. Things do get better. Don't hide the abuse to protect your abuser. As soon as I told my grandma what was happening, she confronted my mom and I went to live with her. My life improved dramatically after moving in with my grandma. I wish I had told people sooner. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm so glad you uh, you got to live with somebody who was loving and appropriate. Um, these are some loves. This is this one was filled out by Lisa. She writes, I love that my boyfriend understands my bipolar and supports me through the rough days, even if it means not talking or touching me. He just keeps remi- reminding me that I am loved. Loved ones of people uh, who suffer from mental illness, take note. That is exactly, exactly. Just keep reminding the person that you love them. Um, Chris writes, I love the moments people share and the loves. And it reminds me that in amongst all the dark that a lot of people have, there is always some light. Thank you for that. Uh, Moremi, Moremi writes, I love writing with a fountain pen and having a spare ink ready for when it runs out. I hope you're writing something fancy. You better not be writing something plain with your with your big fountain pen. I hope it has a big feather and you use the word the. Brian writes, I love when I pick an album or playlist that ends up by serendipity being the perfect accompaniment for whatever it is I'm doing. That's a great one. Uh, this is Psych Ward Experiences filled out by a woman who calls herself Oh Hey Dare. She's uh, in her 20s. Why were you hospitalized? I was hospitalized three times over the period of one year when I was 13 for anorexia, nervosa, and anxiety. My first two hospitalizations were at a local facility only about five miles from home. I spent a month at this hospital both times. The facility itself wasn't horrible while I was there, but looking back, it really was awful, like being in jail. The windows were barred and we were only allowed one hour outside each day. It was this small patio that was fenced in with barbed wire. The children's side was separated from the adult with locking doors. This facility wasn't really geared towards eating disordered patients. There were only a couple of us at any given time. Every morning we had to line up in the hall with medical gowns on for weigh-in. We couldn't eat in the cafeteria with the other kids. We had to eat with a monitor in a separate room. I actually learned some eating disorder behaviors there that I hadn't known of before, like food rituals and sneaky ways to exercise. My parents could visit once a week during group therapy, which was simultaneously comforting and embarrassing. I felt like I was failing them. I told them that I missed my dog, and they brought her outside my window one afternoon as she was not allowed inside. I tapped on the glass and cried as she wagged her tail. Boy, that is a heartbreaking image. The first time I was hospitalized there, my roommate was this burly girl who spent the evenings wadding up toilet paper, wetting it, and trying to get it to stick to the ceiling. She asked if she could make out with me and looked like she might pummel me when I said no. That evening, I requested a new roommate. 
The children there had been raped, attempted suicide, done drugs, been, amu- been abused, and more. I simultaneously empathized with them and yet felt like I did not belong. I just thought I was fat. One kid always felt the need to tell me that I didn't, quote, look anorexic. Most kids only stayed a week, and I watched as new people drifted in and out, actually seeing some students from my school. As this facility, At this facility as well, the staff used a feeding tube as a threat. To gain weight, they would force us to eat ungodly amounts of food. If you didn't finish, you had to drink a whole bottle of Ensure. Uh, I felt bloated and disgusting all of the time. It was no wonder that I went back to starving myself upon release. My third hospitalization was at a special facility just for girls under the age of 18 with eating disorders. It may have been 2,000 miles from home in the desert, but it was a much better place to heal. There was no barbed wire fencing. If we were doing well, we were allowed to go horseback riding. My first day there, I was given a feeding tube. I hated it at first, but quickly realized that they were feeding us normally portioned meals. So every time we ate, uh, so every time we ate didn't feel like a binge. I felt a bit like I was at that juvenile camp from the book Holes, surrounded by desert, no options for running away. I spent Christmas and three months there, and an additional month at a transitional home, a house with a nurse and a therapist, but where we were allowed to prepare our own meals and go to a public school. It was in the art room at this facility that I discovered a punk rock CD in the stereo system and found a new outlet, one I still use today. I'm very fortunate that I had parents that were willing to invest that type of time, resources, and money to help me. I still carry around some guilt that they're still trying to recover their retirement funds. I feel guilty for refusing to talk to them on Christmas Eve because I'd gotten extra mustard on the sandwich they served me. I feel guilty for taking my parents' attention away from my brother, who felt very alone that year. I want to apologize to all who were my friends at that time for the hell I must have put them through with the constant pestering of, do you think I'm fat? Do I look like I've gained weight? Etc. And ultimately not understanding why they fell out of my life. Hospitalization may not be perfect. It may not be ideal, but I don't think I would be here today if I hadn't been hospitalized. July 5th marks the 10-year anniversary of my first hospitalization. Here's to never going back to that place ever again. Thank you for that. That was, uh, was really moving. And I'm so, so glad you're in a better place. God, I just love, love seeing people turn corners. Some more loves. Kimberly says, I love wearing shorts and a t-shirt after a long day of sweating in my military fatigues. Barbara Jean writes, I love when my grandson puts his arms around my neck and his head on my shoulder. Oh, that's sweet. Andrea writes, uh, the way my boyfriend says hello when he picks up the phone. Joe writes, I love when I think I failed a paper, then it comes back an A or a B. Oh, that is an awesome feeling. Paul said, as if he had ever gotten an A or a B. No, I was a good student in college. Uh... This is a shame and secret survey filled up by a trans male who calls himself No. He is straight in his 50s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was repeatedly molested as a young child between the ages of 4 and 11. When telling my mother, her response was, bad things happen to everyone, so get used to it. Ah, that sounds pretty healthy to me. I think your mom was great. 
It took a lot of therapy to deal with my childhood, but I will always have the anxiety at certain things. I've over the years learned to manage and live with my PTSD. Uh, He's been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, I was raised by a violent alcoholic and a drop-in father. Positive experiences with abusers. As my parents have gotten older, I realized I have accepted that my mother did the best she could, especially with her addictions. My father, uh, even older, continues to be self-centered and uninvolved unless he wants something. He's this way with all 11 of his children. (laughs) Well, Well, why can't he step up Pump out one more and make it an even dozen. Go ahead. Why would you emotionally abandon 11 when you can round that to a sweet, sweet dozen? Oh, my Lord. Darkest thoughts. Uh, I have when I'm overwhelmed, felt I'd love to either disappear or run away. Sometimes I feel the need to escape. Boy, I think we all do. Darkest secrets. I was molested by two of my mother's lesbian lovers. I had such hang-ups about this for years. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I get embarrassed to verbally share what fantasies I'm interested in because I fear judgment and denial. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Nothing, really. What do you wish for? Peace. That might be the first time that somebody said that. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared with my husband, but even after being together 30 plus years, it continues to come with a lot of anxiety. How do you feel after writing these things down? Nervous. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Not not really. Here's some more loves. Roger writes, I love when an idea for a story strikes me and I can't wait to crack open the laptop. Margaret writes, I love the feeling of writing with a freshly sharpened Ticonderoga number two pencil. Margaret, I don't think that's specific enough. I would would like more detail. Gina writes, I love a solid nap on fresh sheets with just the right amount of sunshine on my face and a dog on the bed. Oh, that's nice. I love when Herbert, when when I take a nap, if Herbert comes near me. I like having Ivy near me, but Herbert's, uh, Herbert's just, he's just the fucking best. Just the best. I love this one from Julie. I love the smell of snow. There is a smell to snow. There is a smell to it. It's so subtle, but yeah, that's a great one. This is a shame and secret survey. This is filled out by, um, oh boy, this is going to be a long episode. I still got surveys left. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Spin, Spin, Spin. She's straight. She's in her 30s. She was raised in... Where does it say? What kind of environment? Pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. While listening to this podcast, some new memories have resurfaced. I remember drinking the night that I blacked out. I remember him on top of me. I remember his smile and laughing. I remember the penetration. I don't remember anything else. I feel like my mind has played a trick on me, and it's not really a rape because he was smiling and laughing while he was on top of me. I've also had some memories from my teen years on the internet, I'm now in my 30s, of older men grooming me, and more than I care to remember. It makes me feel so much pain that now that I'm older, I let those things happen to me. I was so starved for love and attention that I let these disgusting men use me. You know, 
if you guys have not seen the documentary uh, Hot Girls Wanted, it should be required viewing by every person, especially um, people about to turn 18 years old. Um, it is almost every type of sexual abuse that has some type of grooming involved involves somebody's loneliness and insecurity being used against them. It is, um, man, I was about to start to lecture parents and say, remind your kids that you love them and that they're beautiful, but you know, I bet that there's parents that do that and their kids, maybe just because of the society we live in, who still are just starved for attention and have low self-esteem around their, their looks. Um, let's see. She's been emotionally abused. Uh, love avoidant and love addict shame cycle over and over with every fucking relationship I have ever had. Even when he grabbed my throat and squeezed, I was still thinking if he could only look into my eyes and see my pain, he would stop hurting me. How much fucking pain do I need to convey on my face before he lets go? I am so disgusted with myself. Where was this uber bitch when I let everyone see now when my childhood was full of bullies? Oh, where was this uber bitch I let everyone see now when my childhood was full of bullies and sexual slash emotional abuse? Emotional abuse. I'm so sorry to my 16-year-old self. I failed you. No, your 16-year-old self didn't fail herself. The people around you failed your 16-year-old self. So don't blame yourself. You were a child. Any positive experiences with abusers? I've had a lot of positives with all of them, especially the physically abusive. He is the one who can make me pee my pants laughing and make me pee my pants with fear like a frightened animal. Wow, that is heavy. Darkest, let's just be grateful you're peeing. Uh, darkest thoughts, I wish I could just kill myself to see everyone's reaction, to see if I matter. Just linger around a little bit and see what they do, like an out-of-body experience. I don't want to die. I just want someone to notice me. I want someone to tell me that they love me and me actually feel it instead of just feeling like they are lying or trying to appease me. Darkest secrets. I am so broke right now. I work 45 plus hours a week and make dick. I want to steal from my company's petty cash drawer so much, but I can't. I know that my boyfriend has relapsed and he won't leave and he is sucking me dry. I am drowning and I can't ask for help. It is like me throwing up a fucking boulder every time I try to say, please help me, I can't do this anymore. I am anchored to the bottom of the ocean and with every wave there is little hope that water will dip down just low enough for me to get a breath in, but it never does. I just continue to claw at my throat and feel my lungs burning as I am gasping for air. Well, I hope you do. I hope you do ask for help because... It sounds like there's some enabling and some love addiction going on with your current boyfriend. And, you know, just boot his fucking ass out because the sickness of enabling somebody is every bit as life-threatening as your boyfriend's drug addiction. They are both equally damaging. 
Um, but I want to thank you for uh, thank you for sharing that. There's tons of great support groups for codependency. Some more loves. Barry writes, I love just standing outside and feeling the ground under my feet and the air around me. And then I'll turn around, go back inside, and live my dead life. (laughs) Jennifer writes, I love the feeling of brand new runners before the miles are on them. Pillows on my feet. Oh, is there anything better than new new gym shoes? I still remember a pair of shoes, a pair of Adidas high tops I had in college that to this day I've never felt such comfort. I don't know what they did. I wish I had those shoes. Christy writes, I love giving communion at uh, church. It's like you get to share a sacred holy moment with another person. I feel the need to fake smile a lot and that is the one time where it's definitely shining on my own. That's beautiful. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Patty Poo. She is straight. She's in her 50s. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, I didn't report it at the time, but confronted my brother, who was the abuser, later in life in my 30s. He told me to get over it since he had been abused also by his Boy Scout leader. He... He could get over it. Why couldn't I? The family took his side. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My home was violent, and I never knew it when it would happen. My parents decided they would get divorced. Finally, uh, there were late-night raids rousing me from sleep. I had to choose who I was going to live with right then. And, of course, there was no right answer. Either way, I got beat by the other. If I refused to answer any more questions, they both beat me. This resulted in insomnia, which I still deal with. After I confronted my brother and my family about incest, I was told that my brother had changed and I should forgive him. He was a born-again Christian and God had forgiven him, and I was just a failure as a human for not following God. Any positive experiences with your abusers? No. Darkest thoughts. I have a hit list and have all the tools I need to be a ninja. I spy on my abusers, and when they are not expecting it, I confront them and laugh as I castrate, torture, and finally kill them. Sometimes this fantasy presents itself as if I am Mengele, and they are getting off the cattle car at Auschwitz. I love the terror in their eyes as they know I hold their life in my hands. Darkest Secrets The night I decided I would never again return to my parents' house, I stole a lot of jewelry. Sexual fantasy, most powerful to you. I go to the doctor for sexual tension, and he or she uses a vibrator and talks me into an orgasm using gentle, encouraging words. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? You are guilty. Off with your head. What, if anything, do you wish for? To sleep soundly through the night, at least seven hours. And to hear the judge pound the gavel and say, guilty as charged. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I am in a safe, nurturing environment for the most part. I have made a good life for myself without my family. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little scared, but happy to see how far I've come with my issues. Anything you'd like to share with people who share your thoughts or experiences? I'm almost 60 years old and have been through years of talk and journal therapy. I didn't start getting better until I incorporated meditation 
exercise, massage, and readings into my healing. It can get better if you feel the fear and do it anyway. Oh, amen. Amen. There is no guarantee of uh, a life without fear, but so many coping mechanisms that can help us walk through the fear and support networks uh, are great at helping us walk through the fear. But uh, thank you for that. This is uh, an awful moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself scruffy-looking nerf herder. And she writes, Last fall, a good friend and roommate was very suicidal. After she called someone in our group of friends to talk her down from going through with it for the sixth or seventh time in two months, we decided she needed more help than we could give and took her to the hospital. She absolutely hates them, but she really needed help. A friend and I spent eight or nine hours that afternoon and evening getting her out of bed into her counselor's office to the hospital and checked in. At one point, we ended up in the intake room alone together. As soon as the person doing the forms closed the door, she immediately turned to me and asked, Hey, have you ever made out in a mental hospital? I hadn't. So we did. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a trans male who calls himself Ollie. He is uh, bisexual in his 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, Yes, and I never reported it. Uh, He writes, it wasn't physical, but the behavior of my mother, who, apart from sexual or angry, showed no other emotions. So I grew up finding female sexuality to be repulsive and the sexual attention from men to be the only way to get attention. I found it creepy when kids my age hugged their parents and I assumed most people were pedophiles. I had no idea what maternal or platonic love was. My mom was an alcoholic and used to walk around in, quote, sexy underwear, talking about how turned on she was and have loud sex with men who she'd only just met. Once when drunk, she gave my boyfriend a lap dance. He was 13. Wow. When my sister was caught in bed with my mom's boyfriend, my sister would have been between 12 and 17, my mom was jealous and angry at my sister for being a sexual threat. I told her early on that I was a lesbian so she would stop talking to me about sex even though I was still attracted to men. One of her friends dressed me up in lingerie when I was 10 and took photos of me from provocative provocative angles. My mom was in the other room and I didn't really understand what was going on. I thought they would just be cool photos. When my mom asked to see the pictures, he said they didn't develop properly. I know now that he was a pedophile and if I knew where he lived, I think I'd kill him. I've never told anyone any of this. I'm too ashamed that it's not real abuse, but it's messed me up so badly. I can't hold down any physical relationship, and I'm almost certain all of this is the reason I hated my, quote, female body. As an adult, I was raped by an emotionally abusive ex. Um, all All of that stuff is real abuse. All of it. All of it. Uh... He was also physically and emotionally abused. 
And he writes, due to the emotional nature of the possible sexual abuse, now it's not possible sexual abuse, it is sexual abuse, I have ended up in a few emotionally abusive relationships. I have zero self-confidence as a result. And even if I'm dating someone, I find it impossible to even ask for a hug or a kiss. I had a boyfriend once who used to pity me and call me, quote, such a victim, with a little smile on his face, then stub cigarettes out on my arms and legs, even in public. Any positive experiences with your abusers? The ex who physically abused me was also caring and sweet. I didn't have to be present when I was with him because the only feeling I had to deal with was pain, which is the only feeling I'm good at, and it was freeing. It was fine until I tried to break it off. Then he manipulated his way into sleeping with me, even though I kept saying I didn't want to. I was too phased out on medication to care. Uh, It was the least self-conscious time of my life, and part of me enjoyed it, which is fucked up. Darkest thoughts. I think about being a little girl again as I was born slash raised a girl and being physically abused and it makes me feel wanted. I find it hard to orgasm over anything else. I zone out during sex. I have no emotional tie to sex. Darkest secrets. I think I've typed them all. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like being hit or slapped in the face and roughly fucked anything with zero romance. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my mother that she was terrible at raising kids and emotionally empty because she fucked me up so badly. I've been spending my whole adult life becoming as little like her as possible. What, if anything, do you wish for? The ability to love someone and show it without anxiety. Have you shared these things with others? No, it's too big a can of worms. Oh, I just want to encourage you to, to share, it with, uh, share it with a mental health professional. Because um, that stuff that happened to you is really serious. It's really serious. Incest is, um, it's it leaves really, really deep scars. But it, it uh, we can heal. We can heal. And I'm, I'm proof. I'm proof. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little broken. Anything you'd like to share to, with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Sexual abuse isn't always people touching you. Sometimes it's how you're trained to think, feel, and what you're exposed to. You are no less valid in your pain and need for help. Well, you just dittoed me. That sounded dirty. Uh, And this is the last, not the last survey, but the last uh, shame and secret survey filled up by a woman who calls herself my poor fucking husband. She is straight in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. Um, She's not sure if she's been uh, emotionally abused. Um, Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I envision punching people in the face when they are mid-sentence. Doesn't matter the topic of conversation. Sometimes people just need a good punch in the face. I also tend to envision anyone but my husband when we are having sex, from past lovers to the bartender at my favorite dive. It sometimes brings tears to my eyes during sex because I feel like such a fucking asshole. Then I feel even worse because I bet he thinks I'm crying because it's so good. It is really good, and he is one of the hottest men I know, but my mind wanders. Don't beat yourself up for that. Uh, we are in couples therapy just to stay on top of clear communication, but I will never share these thoughts or secrets because I fear I will lose everything with him. I will share these with my personal therapist. Darkest secrets. 
I have lost track of how many people I've slept with. I'm thinking in the high 40s. How did that happen? Recently out of college, I was back visiting with friends. A bunch of us got together to party and reminisce. Some guy friends of mine were celebrating one of our friends becoming engaged that day. As we all passed out in the living room, he wiggled his way next to me, begging to get in my pants. Yes, not even 24 hours engaged and surrounded by his future groomsmen, he was willing to mess around with me. Many years ago, a friend of mine's girlfriend was out of town on vacation and few of us were partying at their apartment. I went to the couch to sleep and he continued to come out and say, just sleep in my bed. It's cold out here. You don't have a blanket, etc. I kept saying no until finally I gave up and went into his bed. Uh, we made out, touched, etc. I continued the cycle of feeling like a slutty piece of shit who can't be trusted. They were engaged a few months later. I attended the bachelorette party, bridal shower, wedding, and later baby shower. I love her, and she is such an amazing girl. I have kept that secret forever. It's been almost nine years, and we'll take it to the grave. But I have a little piece of me that hates him. Men are fucking pieces of shit, and they will all cheat on you or betray you eventually. Um, you know, I understand that that's, uh, that's how you feel. But, you know, ask yourself, how would you feel? How would you feel if somebody said, you know, all women are, etc., etc., etc.? She writes, when I get super fucked up and drunk with friends, I will text an ex of mine. I will ensure that he is still in love with me, even though he is married too, and see if he would still be willing to give everything up to move to my city and be with me. His answer is always yes, even though I have no intention on pursuing that. I have given my number to people and text back and forth with them when I am out drinking. I have come on to the bartender who works near my house. I know he would act on it, even though he really likes my husband. I never go beyond texting or Facebook messaging or flirting. No kissing, touching, etc. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you're being on that doesn't mean you're not being unfaithful. Um, you know the the litmus test for fidelity for me is if would you do it if your partner was right there with you and if you wouldn't then you shouldn't do it uh she writes uh flirting no kissing touching etc but i want to but i won't i refuse to continue being quote the bad one in a relationship and even though our marriage is new two years i refuse to let it fail however a sick part of me thinks i may be trying to sabotage this marriage before he has the chance to destroy it beat him to it since i am sure he will do something fucked up like all the other guys i described not all guys are like the guys that you described i can tell you that um Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, me dominating the male. I also regret not experimenting with women and often wonder if that would have been a better option for me considering my track history with men. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell the guy who continued to fuck me as I passed in and out of drunken consciousness in college that he probably should have called it quits instead of finishing. I may not have been okay with it initially, I may have been okay with it initially, but losing consciousness is certainly a red flag that the girl may not be into it anymore. Then again, maybe I deserved it. You did not deserve it, and that is rape. What happened? Um, she writes, Super Troopers was playing on the TV in the background, and I hate that fucking movie to this day. 
Um, and, you know, you should know also that <clears throat> people who have been uh, sexually violated, uh, oftentimes, one of the ways that they cope with it is by becoming um, promiscuous as a, as a way to try to regain uh, control. And so these these things that you've, you know, ways that you put yourself down, um, just know that it, it could be coming from um, the trauma that, that you've experienced. Uh, if you share these things with others, she writes, about to share with my therapist. Perfect. Uh, could not share with friends or husband because I don't want the judgment and don't want to lose them. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? A little better and ashamed. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you so much for your, your, your honesty. And then finally, we've got, uh, we've got a, uh, actually we've got two short things. Uh, a memorable vacation argument filled out by Brittany. She writes, uh, my mom was pissed off on a cruise. She called me a fucking bitch, then slapped me across the face. I felt so helpless. I decided to wipe my ass with her face towel. I felt much better after that. <laughs> I kind of wanted to end the podcast on that one, but I decided it, uh, I want to end it on this one, which was a snapshot from a struggle in a sentence survey. And uh, this is filled out by Caitlin. And um, she writes, when I was 19, I was hit by a car as a pedestrian. They were drunk. I had to relearn how to walk again. The first time I walked was in the kitchen of my mom's house. I walked to her. Uh, I walked from her to my stepfather like a baby taking its first steps. It was magical. I know this was supposed to be about a struggle. I mean, lear relearning how to walk was one of the biggest struggles of my life so far. But that moment of triumph and absolute love made it worthwhile. I love those bittersweet moments. Well, my voice made it through it. What are we at? 153 minutes. Sweet mother of God. Um, well, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, go get help. Go get help. Call an 800 number. Call information. Call a trusted friend. Google an issue that you're struggling with. Do anything. Do anything, but don't try. Don't try to do it on your own. Life's much better. Life is so much better healing with other people. And um, just know that there's, there's always help. We're surrounded by help. It may not seem like it, but we are. And um, you're not alone. You're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.